welcome to the Make Do Suburban Fireman Podcast, where we talk all things suburban fire service with your hosts, Nick Peppert and Sean Duffy. This podcast is sponsored by National Rescue Consultants, Build Your Culture, North Florida Fire and EMS Training, LLC, and the North Florida Fire Expo. So grab a drink, pull up a chair, and let's go. All right. Hey, everybody. Nick Peppert here with the uh, Make Do Suburban Fireman Podcast. Um, Episode 20. Episode 20. Feels weird saying that. Episode 20 uh, here on August 11th, 2022. It is a beautiful 75 degree and sunny day here in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, I'm joined today with a special guest, Andy Saccadato from Water Thieves. Uh, But before we get to Andy, I uh, also have here a special guest with us, Brian Weigel out of Elmira Heights, uh, New York, my old stomping grounds. So Brian is going to just kind of fill us in a little bit on uh, what he's got going on up there in Western upstate New York and uh, kind of give us a little info on the upcoming Twin Tiers Fire Conference. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, thanks, uh, Nick, again for the plug. So um, last year, maybe two years ago, just before COVID started, um, was trying to find, you know, different training companies, whether it was a Fools chapter um, or what have it there. Um, came across Fire Nuggets, um, and with the help of Fire Nuggets, uh, Jeff Bryant um, and those guys started a chapter here. Um, last year, we had our first conference in Big Flats, New York. Um, we had Nick, Sean, um, Tim Collette, and Kyle Sampson all come up last year. We did lecture conference, um, had a great time um, this year. Try to do a bigger, a little bit bigger, do a bigger hands-on conference. Um, with COVID, I think, and inflation, we're not going to get into those rabbit holes just yet, but um, kind of had to take some turns this year. So we're going to have Nick come out and teach a suburban engine company class and present that in um, Schmunk County, New York's Tower. Um, going to get a couple engine crews and flow some water, do some engine company tactics. Yeah, so uh, excited to be coming back up there, obviously. Uh, For those that know me well, um, I'm originally from right down the road from Brian, ironically. Uh, We didn't know each other when I lived there, though. No. It wasn't until after the fact, but uh, born and raised in that area. So always cool to go home, uh, back home and see folks. And But uh, we're we're excited. We're going to do a lot of good engine stuff, a lot of of hose line uh, deployments, movements, you know, moving water. Um, It's going to be a good time. Uh, for anybody that's up in that part of the country, highly recommend it. Uh, you can't beat the, the brotherhood and the fellowship that goes along with it up there. A lot of great departments, good good firemen. Um, and like I said, a beautiful time of year. Uh, it's October 15th and 16th, correct? Yes, October 15th and 16th, 2022. Um, I'm terrible at remembering dates and times. And Well, that's that's the first step, right? we gotta got to know when it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. No, you're good, man. No, it's it's all over Facebook, guys. Check it out, Twin Tiers Fire Conference. Uh, middle of October in upstate New York is absolutely beautiful. Um, the Northeast that time of year is is just gorgeous. So you couldn't ask for a better time of year to be out there doing engine work, flowing water. So it's uh, going to be a good time. I think it's, uh, it's definitely a worthwhile cause. And obviously, um, I think everybody's kind of adjusting to the last couple of years with with changes to stuff. I mean, there's a couple of things I think that you look at. I mean, 
Uh, there's so many great training events that have popped up all over the country in the last 10 oh, years. Yeah. And, and, and just in my career, I can look back in the last couple of decades here and think of how much good training is out there now and how more, you know, how much more accessible it is to us than what it was when I first came on the job. And, and kudos to you, man, for having the, the cojones to uh, the, the rocks to step out on, on kind of on that limb and put yourself out there to start yeah. an event like this, because it takes a lot of planning. It oh, takes yeah. a lot of logistical uh, manpower to get stuff in position and to step out in a market that's relatively not, you know, not been previously in the market, so to speak, as far as the conference stuff goes, um, is it takes a lot of guts to do it and it takes a lot of love for the job. So uh, kudos to you for doing that, man. I think it's going to be a, a good thing and hopefully something that sustains uh, itself down the road for years to come. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, and looking at New York, you know, we have FDNY guys to pull from. We have Rochester, Buffalo. You know, we have big areas, but we don't have a lot of conferences. Sure. You know, and I think that's where kind of my passion in wanting to put this conference on is for the lack of that. And, you know, my area, like Nick said, it's a beautiful area. A lot of volunteer departments. We have some small career departments in our area, but, you know, I... I, I wanted something for those volunteer departments and those small career departments that we may not always get and we may not always be able to afford to come up and have that training and availability. And I know, Nick, you definitely helped me along the way with random questions even before you presented that. Sure. So I definitely appreciate that and everybody that's helped me out of the way along the way. Cause I'm just some young guy from upstate New York is how I look at it. And Hey man, you know what? The thing about it is like, that's the beauty of, of I think social media and, and just the internet's brought the fire service closer together in a lot of ways because um, we can share and, and put this stuff out there and, and, and really, you know, seeing these, these smaller conferences pop up has, has been encouraging because like you said, in, in the past, you know, smaller departments may not be able to afford to send, you know, three, four or five guys to FDIC or Firehouse Expo or some of these bigger shows. And and that's just the reality of where we're at in the American Fire Service. So if you can bring uh, that that style of training and, and, and learning and brotherhood uh, to your own backyard, I think that's a commendable thing. And it's something that uh, is definitely catching on. Uh, a lot of a lot of new conferences oh, yeah. have popped up in the last 10 years. And I think it's a good thing. And it's a testament to uh, folks really just wanting to enhance the training of their folks in their own backyard, you know, these regional conferences are, are very important, in my opinion, to to spreading the news, you know, the message, uh, getting getting that, you know, people excited about the job and, and kind of getting them exposed to maybe some stuff that they wouldn't be exposed to otherwise um, in, in their own backyard. Right. Like kind of, you know, there's it's so easy to kind of get in your own little bubble and forget how much there is to learn in the fire service around us. And I think these type of events kind of just kind of shore up the brotherhood, shore up the uh, the learning and education and, and give folks a chance to maybe learn some new stuff, some things they haven't thought about, or maybe even just to, to shore up what they're already doing, right, and get better at the stuff that they're already doing well. So, um, Brian, thank you for uh, coming on here for a few minutes to talk about the Twin Tiers Fire Conference again, October 15th and 16th. Uh, it's coming up fast. It's only a yeah. couple months away. So uh, get on there, get on the website, register. Uh, we hope to see you guys out there in October. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. Um, also, plug for next year. We'll have Andy coming on next year as well. So kind of a good mix of crowd today. So yeah. appreciate you guys. Enjoy talking about water, and I'll be sure to check everything out and take a listen. All right, brother. Thank you, man. Thank you.
Take care. All right. So uh, always good to talk to Brian. You know, I've been uh, talking to Brian for a few years now and uh, just a, a solid brother who who gets it. He's he's into the job. He's passionate. And what I love about it is uh, like so many of our listeners on, this, you know, the Make Do Suburban Fireman podcast that aren't in big city departments, you know, departments across all across the country that the reality is 80 plus percent of the fire service falls in the realm of, of suburban or rural. And that's just a fact. And so, uh, Andy, I know uh, you're you're passionate about this topic as well and about that that setting. A lot of the classes you do are not departments that have 1500 guys on the job. And, you know, a lot of the stuff is is stuff is practical at the at the level of, of you know, your volunteer fire companies, your small career fire companies, uh, departments. You know, and the thing is, it's, it's not just applicable, obviously, for those guys. It's applicable. Water supply is one of the things that we all use and, and need to be proficient at. But what I love about it is. You know, it's one of those universal fire department issues, right? It's it transcends everybody in the fire service from the FDNY to the single volunteer fire company uh, in in rural America, and that is, if we don't have good water supply, we're we're going to fail on the fire ground. So uh, that being said, um, I'm going to back up just a minute, Andy, if you would, uh, welcome to the show, brother. Just give us a little bit of your background, kind of where you came from, where you're at now, what you're doing with the water thieves, and we'll dive in from there, bro. Sure. Uh, so uh, I started my my career in um, New Jersey. That's where I that's where I started as a volunteer. Uh, started when I was uh, 16 years old and uh, volunteered there for about uh, six years up in Morris County, uh, New Jersey, with the Chatham Township Volunteer Fire Department. Uh, in 2011, I got hired with the Charlottesville, Virginia Fire Department uh, down. Uh, in central Virginia, and I worked there for about nine years, spent the majority of my time there assigned to um, Engine 7 in the city, and uh, spent a a year and a half-ish on our our 95-foot mid-mount tower, and then the last couple years that I was there, I was on our uh, 105-foot tiller. Um, And that that truck kind of has a a special place in my heart because – I had the privilege of being on the design committee that helped build that truck. So um, I'm a little partial to that rig. Uh, but so I left there and uh, now I currently work with the uh, state of Tennessee. I uh, work for the state fire Academy uh, where I oversee the pump and aerial programs for the state. So uh, I really like moving water and uh, I started like a lot of us started in the volunteer world, uh, volunteered while I was in Virginia with a small uh, department in Albemarle County. So, um, you know, I, I get, I get that mindset of, uh, you know, the suburban and rural side of things and, you know, trying to make water work in, in that environment can be challenging, but it can be done. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, kind of a pretty diverse background. Um, but uh, your passion for moving water started started early, huh? I mean, it sounds like oh, it started yeah. so uh, in your volunteer days. It's funny because the very first uh, drill that I, uh, you know, that's what we called our training nights, drill night. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first drill that I ever went to, first day at the firehouse in New Jersey, we were doing a, uh, a hydrant drill, just teaching folks how to, how to hook to a hydrant. So that was uh, my first introduction to the fire service was how to make a hydrant connection and it just kind of blossomed from there. So, 
yeah kind of kind of stuck with you yeah so um so anybody that knows you uh knows you're with uh the water thieves so let's talk about how that uh that training company came about and just kind of some of the the good folks that you get to work with and and some of the stuff you guys have been able to do the last couple years with with that group yeah so um that business kind of started you know while i was in charlottesville um, obviously I, I, really took to the, the whole driver engineer role. I really enjoyed that. And, you know, a, a lot of my love for that position stemmed from, um, just a lot of, just like anything else in the fire service, a lot of, uh, differing opinions and just trying to find, you know, answers to questions I had and getting a wide variety of answers from from people. So I just kind of dived in and was like, you know, I really want to know about this because I've heard a lot of bullshit answers. And, you know, I, I don't think that's right, but I don't know why it's wrong. So, um, you know, that kind of made me immerse myself a little bit more, uh, more than the average bear, I guess. And, um, uh, you know, I started started really diving deep into some of this water supply stuff. And while I was in uh, Charlottesville and volunteering in, in the county, I got picked up to help with Albemarle County's training division uh, with their their pump program and, and help teach helping teach uh, their driver operator programs there. And um, while I was teaching with that cadre, some folks that I knew uh, both in the state of Virginia and outside the state, they were like, hey, man, will you will you come teach like a pump class? Because we don't know what we're doing and whatever. And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll come. Yeah, if you if you're willing to listen to some nerd talk about water, I have no problem coming. And it turned into, uh, hey, we want to pay you to come and do this. And I was like, well, maybe I should make a business to do this legally and do it right. Um, and here we are. So, you know, um, you know, we, we've, we've gone, we've spent the majority of our time on the East coast. Uh, we've been as far West as Lake of the Ozarks. We've been at that conference the last two years. And, um, you know, the intention, the intention of the business is obviously not for Andy to get rich. Uh, just like, you know, none of us are firemen to get rich. The intention is really just to highlight um, a lot of the stuff that people just don't understand with regards to water supply, right? Cause it, I joke around all the time, but, um, water supply is not a sexy topic and most people don't think it's cool until they're flowing stupid amounts of water. And then they're like, Oh, well, there kind of is a cool side of this. So it's not sexy until it is. Yeah, no, that's uh that's a good way to put it. It's, uh, I'm like a little kid in a candy shop today because uh, the driver engineer role was something I was very, when I was a driver, very, very passionate about. Uh, love, love that position. I think it's one of the most pivotal positions on the fire ground. Uh, speaking of Lake of the Ozarks, uh, David and Elizabeth have done a, you know, just a phenomenal job up there in, uh, in Lake of the Ozarks, Missouri with the uh, revolutionary fire tax by the lake. Um, fantastic conference. Just celebrated five years. Um, that's where we kind of first met. I took your yep. class up there a couple of years ago and just loved every second of it, man. It, it really is one of those topics that uh, I think that everybody, I always tell people, you know, the driver engineer role, the water supply, if you have a smooth operation, nobody ever talks about it or thinks about it. Right. But when you, the minute you have an issue with water supply, everybody's screaming at the driver, right? Everybody's yeah. you know throwing hands up in the air and puffing and puffing. And that's, that's number one debrief topic that's <laughs> in right. the debrief room. So 
you know, when I was a driver, I wanted to learn as much as I could. Same thing. I had a lot of people tell me anecdotal information and, and like stuff like, ah, I'm hearing conflicting information. I don't know what's what. And so a lot of trial and error, same thing, kind of getting out there and just on the pump panel. So uh, I, I share your love for water supply. I share your love for that position because I think it is uh, one of the most uh, underappreciated and overlooked important positions uh, in the fire service, hands Absolutely. down. So, um, but so you get, you know, fast forward, you're, you're doing stuff now with water thieves. You guys are, are, are doing some really good stuff out there. I know you had the, uh, the 15,000 GPM uh, contest. Yeah. Uh, not too long ago. That So talk about that a little bit. That was kind of cool, man. That was a little friendly competition. Yeah. So a uh, buddy of mine, Chris Edmondson from the uh, West coast, he, um, he made a video and posted on social media and he took um, three engines and hooked them up to uh, two hydrants and was able to uh, achieve a 7,500 gallon per minute flow through a dual pumping operation and, and some other interesting stuff. And, and in that video, he, he kind of, he challenged me, called me out and said, Hey, I want you to beat my number. Um, you know, go forth and prosper. Right. So, um, obviously the first thing I said was, okay, here we go. Right. And I, I can't back down from this. Um, and then the second thing I said jokingly was, well, the dude cheated, right? Chris cheated because he used hydrants, you know? So I was like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, we're going to beat his number or at least tie his number, but we're going to do it from a draft. So, um, fortunately I had a bunch of good contacts in Chesapeake, Virginia, a uh, good buddy of mine, uh, Blake Roberson from Chesapeake. He, uh, uh, he was really, uh, instrumental in, in getting that whole thing, um, you know, situated and, and coming to life through the logistical side of things. Um, you know, he was able to coordinate with, uh, Chesapeake fire and we had, um, our, our mutual friend, uh, Jared Sergi from Norfolk brought us an engine and we were able to get a rig from Suffolk. And, uh, then we had some folks that were willing to come down from, uh, La Plata, Maryland. They brought a pumper and, uh, some folks from Shepherdstown, uh, West Virginia came down, brought a pumper. So when it was all said and done, we had six pumpers, uh, two submersible pumps from case pumps. They make, um, floating submersible units and then Chesapeake Fire Department has a 5,000 gallon per minute trailer mounted pump that's part of their special operations team. Um, so when all things were said and done, we were able to put all of that into operation. We flowed 15,000 gallons a minute out of the Elizabeth River from a draft for uh, roughly two and a half, three hours. Um, so, yeah, it was it was pretty cool. So I'm not a I'm not a mathematician, but that's a lot of water. It was a lot of water, and uh, <laughs> I love the competition, man. Yeah, it was it was good, and and we probably would have gone a little bit longer, but um, two of our supply pumpers started running low on fuel, and we had to <laughs> we had to siphon fuel out of other trucks, and it it, it got a little hairy for a second, but um, yeah, it was it was a cool day. Yeah, that is that is fantastic, man. I, I love it. Um, you know, it's funny because people say we'll sit there and say, well. Oh, running out of fuel on a fire, this, that, and the other. Like, oh, I mean, that doesn't happen. But the reality of it is, like, those fires do happen. Yeah, they do. And, you know, John Haywick up there in New Jersey, uh, right before he retired, had that big 11, 11 alarmer up there in uh, New Jersey. And they had to bring in fuel trucks in the middle of winter because uh, yep. trucks were running out of fuel. So, 
Uh, those big extended uh, campaign fires can and do happen across the country all the time. And so that's what I, you know, I kind of want to, I want to bridge, you know, kind of jump off this, this diving board a little bit because I hear people tell me all the time, you know, as a fire service, we've dumbed down water supply so much where just, you know, just get a, a, we don't even think about it anymore. We just put, you know, indefinite amount of, of supply holes on a one steam report on a hydrant and we just, whatever, you know, we'll run 800,000 feet of holes, whatever to the fire. And, you know, it's funny because you go around the country and you talk about it and there's a lot of departments that don't fully tap hydrants. And there's a lot of hydrant or, you know, folks that believe that if they were to put two LDHs on a hydrant, that it would just be too much for the system. And, and there's, and there's a lot of folks that, that kind of, you know, downplay the importance of big water when you need it. it. You know, it's one of those things that you don't need it until you need it. And 98% of our operations, it's not an issue, right? We get away with it. We get away with, you know, a couple, two, three lines. That's most of our fires, right? Two, three lines. You know, maybe you get a big fire, you have four or five lines and you have a second hydrant or something like that. But the reality of it is the bulk of our fires don't fall in that realm of, of big water operations for extended periods of time. And so we, I, I think we kind of get lulled as a fire service into this, this complacency about water supply and fully dressing out hydrants and, and putting pumpers on the hydrant and uh, really going over what those big water operations look like. Because when you need it, it's not the time to try to jump through hoops and figure out, oh man, what do we got to do to make this happen, Right. We should have some sort of plan in place for those big, you know, high risk facilities, those those potential big fires in our in our area. And ironically, a lot of it, you know, you look at a lot of these these facilities that are being built. They're not being built in the middle of urban centers anymore. A lot of them are being built uh, in rural areas that uh, water supply can be tricky, uh, to, to put it lightly, uh, to get big water in these places. So uh, what are your thoughts on, first of all, just the mindset towards water supply and the fire service? And then secondly, um, when you when you need that type of water, how important is it to you in your mind to already pre-plan that and drill on that stuff ahead of time? Yeah. So, um, you know, that's a that's a great question. Right. So I think a lot of this and and I'm going to start this by saying nothing that I'm about to say or anything that we teach through our programs is really anything new or revolutionary. It's stuff that has been taught for the last 50 to 60 years. But the biggest difference is, um, and, and I really attribute a lot of the difference in, you know, where we are today with our complacency with water supply, I, I attribute a lot to the advent of large diameter hose. Um, you know, years and years and years ago when we were using two and a half and three inches of supply line, right, guys understood the importance of laying multiple supply lines to the, to the fire and putting pumpers on hydrants. Because if you didn't, you didn't barely get handline flows, right? So, um, you know, when when LDH was uh, released in the fire service, you know, there was this mindset from a marketing side of things that, oh, you know, it's like laying an above ground water main and, you know, it, it really makes more with less and blah, 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 which is is true for our residential fires in a lot of instances. However, I feel like it has bred complacency uh, on the commercial fires. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that we teach a lot in our classes is if, if folks are serious about moving big water, you know, you need to put multiple supply lines on the ground and that means multiple fours or fives. Um, 
And one of the big things that we talk about in our class is, you know, uh, in my travels, I see a lot of fire departments are going to five inch shows and that's fine. You know, I know there are people that argue for and against five inch and, you know, I, I really personally, I don't care what people buy, you know, you buy whatever works for you, but the, the biggest, um, um, hiccup that I see people make with five inch shows is, you know, when you do the math, you can mathematically flow 2000 gallons a minute out of a five inch supply line. And the friction loss is only 30 pounds per hundred foot. So, I mean, I could move that volume of water a decent amount. Right. Um, but the biggest problem that people forget is that the limiting factor typically is not um, your five inch supply line for that type of flow. It's the plumbing on your truck. And depending on how your apparatus was built and what you spec when you're building that rig uh, and or what apparatus manufacturer you deal with, um, if you put an LDH discharge on your pumper, it may, uh, some apparatus manufacturers only plumb a three inch pipe, some apparatus manufacturers plumb four inch pipe. And if you read the NFPA standard, the standard only says that a three inch discharge only needs to be able to flow 375 gallons a minute. A four inch discharge only needs to be able to flow 625 gallons a minute. So, um, you know, what I tell people is, yeah, can you get a thousand gallons a minute out of an LDH discharge? Yeah, there will be some internal plumbing loss, but nothing that you really care about. But if you sit there and think, OK, I can flow 2000 gallons a minute out of a four inch discharge feeding a five inch hose, it ain't going to happen. There's too much internal appliance loss in the pump. So all that boils down to is the need for those larger scale fires, you got to put another supply line on the ground. Even if, you know, if, if your hydrant is a 2000 gallon per minute hydrant, right, you need to put another supply line on the ground to be able to move that water through to the fire scene with a minimal amount of loss. So, you know, that comes, uh, we talk about how to put parallel supply lines into operation and really what that revolves around. Cause that, that brings up the next question. Well, my rig only has one LDH discharge. So how do I put another five inch on the ground and supply it when I only have one LDH discharge? And this is why, and some people look at me like I'm crazy, but it is what it is. You know, if people are serious about moving that kind of volume or that type of volume is a, a potential in your fire department, all the more reason why your rig needs to be carrying either a trimese or a, a clappered siamese uh, a trimese or a manifold of some sort. And now I'll run two, three, or even four, two and a half inch lines or three inch lines off my other discharges to that manifold to feed that second five inch. Because, you know, a lot of people will be like, oh, I'll just take a two and a half to five inch uh, adapter and put it on a two and a half inch discharge. And yeah, I mean, you could do that, but you're, you know, that, that plumbing only needs to flow 250 gallons a minute. So really what are you accomplishing at that point? Whereas if I split that flow between multiple discharges, now I can move that volume. And, and when people are like, well, you know, that you're full of shit, like, like that, whatever. I always, I always relate it to, okay, when we watch a, uh, uh, an apparatus pump test and I have a 2000 gallon per minute pumper, right? we watch the folks or even participate in doing a pump test, we don't see the pump test being done flowing 2000 gallons a minute out of one discharge. The test is 
2,000 gallons a minute out of multiple discharges. So if I'm going to try to do that, whether it's from a draft or from a hydrant, the same laws of physics exist. So I have to use multiple discharges in order to make that work. And that's why parallel supply line operations are something that um, departments should be prepared to perform if they're serious about moving big volumes of water. And, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, my rule of thumb, and, and you can argue this up and down a couple, uh, you know, a couple hundred gallon per minute. Um, but I generally say from a, you know, an incident command standpoint or a water supply standpoint, I count one supply line as good for a thousand gallons a minute, regardless of if it's four inch or five inch. And the reason being is, well, I know four inch really much past a thousand gallons a minute. The friction loss is roughly 20 pounds per hundred. So, you know, when I get to those longer lays, it's really not realistic to try and flow more than that. But in five inch, this is usually where people are like, well, this, this is bull because you can, the math says I can do that 2000 gallons a minute. But again, it boils back down to that plumbing, right? So realistically, yeah, could you move more through the five inch? Yes. But I would bet my paycheck that your plumbing is going to limit you uh, more so than the five inch itself. Uh, now, if you spec bigger plumbing, five inch or six inch pipe, that's a little different. But, you know, that comes with an added cost to your apparatus. Yeah, that's man, that's uh, that's that's good stuff. <laughs> I got so many notes here. Um, so on, on plumbing, let's let's park there for a second. Um, a couple a couple things. Uh, number one, a couple years ago, when we were doing the hydrant portion of the. Uh, your class up there at Lake of the Ozarks. Yeah. That particular apparatus we were using a couple of years ago, uh, I couldn't believe it. We had two master streams, uh, the little mercury monitors on the ground and uh, flowing those on basically opposite sides of the truck, right? Two different yep. discharges. And I just remember we were sitting there at the pump and it took us almost 30 pounds difference on the officer side to get the same flow as we were getting off the driver's side. And I couldn't, I mean, I, I've seen some some differences, little fluctuations here and there, which is why it's important to put flow meters and, and pedos and stuff on your hoses, on your discharges, and actually see what you're getting because plumbing does affect that stuff. But I never seen one quite that drastic, and I just I remember that kind of stuck with me because I was like, wow, this is the same size discharge coming off the same pump, but because of the way they had run the piping, it was almost a 30 psi difference to get the same exact 500 gpm flow out of that other monitor. And that just really kind of cemented in my mind how important plumbing really is. And speaking of plumbing going, you know, we, we talk about plumbing. It's not just on the discharge side, right? It's also on the intake side. So let's talk about some of the drawbacks. We're talking about apparatus design, right? And how that affects water supply. Um, it's, it's no secret to the fire service to anybody that's involved with drafting operations that front intakes have limitations because of distance from the pump and plumbing as, as we're talking about here. Um, in your experience, how much of a difference do you usually see between, you know, if you got a if you got a mid mount pump and you got a front intake, and you got a side intake, the difference in flows that you're able to achieve in that setting? Yeah. So, and and this is this is where people might <laughs> sit and look at me and say, well, this guy's full of shit because he claims to be a big water guy, but in the same breath, he's going to turn around and say that he's a huge advocate of front intakes because. I am. I love a front intake and every rig that I spec has a front intake on it because at the end of the day, this is what I tell folks, at the end of the day, 
flow is important, but functionality is even more important to me. So with regards to that in the hydrated setting, right? I love a front intake because of the positioning advantages that it gives me, right? The front intake is one intake that I can see from the driver's seat and I can see my water source. And I joke around with people and say, if you can't position for a front intake, you have absolutely no business driving the rig, right? Because it's the one intake you can see. There's no reason why you should come up short or there should be kinks in the line, in my opinion. So with that being said, like for hydrant ops, what I love about a front intake is it allows me if your department has this mindset, because I go a lot of places where, you know, people will get killed if they if they even suggest taking the apparatus off the pavement. But if I can jump a sidewalk or something like that and position for a front intake, I can get my water supply rapidly and leave room for a truck company that's trying to get by me or another engine that has to do another reverse at whatever it is. Right. I leave room for the scene. So going back to your question about flows, right? Here's the big thing. Yes, front in, front intakes, yes, they restrict your flow. Absolutely, and I'm not going to debate it. The rig that I was driving in Charlottesville for a while um, before it got replaced, you know, being the dork that I am, I measured the pipe and the length and 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 all of that and and the horizontal distance from where the front intake was to the midship where the center line of the pump was was about 14 and a half feet. But when I factored in all the bends and the, the, you know, everything that's going on there, it was the equivalent of that water traveling through 135 feet of five inch pipe in that 14 and a half uh, horizontal span. So, you know, that right there, a lot of people are like, well, you shouldn't spec a front intake, right? That's not worth it. So there's a couple ways I can get around that. The biggest way in hydrant in the in you know in the world of hydrant operations is use six inch soft sleeve on your front intake, period, right? Because when I when I use six inch soft sleeve on my front intake, the friction loss in a 25 foot section, I'm not saying replace all your LDH with six inch hose, right? I'm just saying carry a 25 foot jumper on your front intake. And what that does is at 2,000 gallons a minute, six-inch hose, a 25-foot section has around five pounds of loss in it. So that's negligible in my world, right? So to me, in my brain, that's the equivalent of ripping that hydrant out of the ground, putting it right on that front intake, and now the only loss in the system is the plumbing itself, right? So I'm making the best out of a you know, not a great intake. Right. And the flow rates that I've achieved through average hydrants, right. I've gotten 1100 gallons a minute through a front intake alone, but I can get a lot of that water back when I double and triple tap the hydrant. So here's why I love a front intake. It allows me to establish fast water with the ability to expand if I need it. Right. I can get that initial water supply set up reliably without kinks very rapidly and if i need more water that's when i'll start double and triple tapping the hydrant with the gate valves that i put on from the original setup so it allows me to start rapidly with a sustainable supply and build from there and you know that's the hydrant side of things now now in the drafting world um you know when i draft through a front intake there is uh, the 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 flow restriction becomes a little bit more evident right and on average, again, this is going to depend on how it's plumbed, blah, 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 right? 
But in my experience, most front intakes, you're only going to be able to expect about a 750 gallon per minute flow rate uh, from a draft. Now, here's why I love the front intake in the rural environment. If I'm setting up a dump site and I'm setting up my, my, my dump site pumper, right? Very rarely in the rural environment can I ever set the dump tank right next to the rig at the passenger or the driver's side intake. And if I do that in the real world, I probably have blocked the entire road and now these tankers can't come and offload. So in my mind, for most rural fires, I need to either back the engine into the driveway and have the dump tank in front of the pumper, or if I want to leave the driveway open, I need to leave the pumper in one lane of of travel, one lane on the road, and put the dump tanks again, either in front of or behind the rig, and draft that way. So that's where I want a front intake because the dump tank at the dump site is probably best suited in front of the rig, right? And by having a front intake there, yes, I'm limited on flow, but again, I can rapidly, with one section of hard sleeve and a strainer, hook to it, put it in the water, get a prime rapidly, and if I need more water, I can perform a twin or a triple tube drafting configuration by adding more hard sleeve to the operation. Um, so again, it, it, it boils down to positioning. The, the positioning needs are way more important than a couple extra gallons per minute in my mind. And, you know, I, I, I like to bring up this, uh, this example in my classes. You know, I'll, I'll ask students, I'll say, hey, you know, how many times in the real world have you really ever needed, you pulled up, to a rural fire and you need a thousand gallons a minute or more from the word go, right? And in my experience, that has been very, very rare, right? But inevitably, right, you got that one guy in the class that's like, oh yeah, I went to six of those fires last week, right? Okay, fine. So if that's the case, right, let's say you need a thousand gallons a minute. I ask, is it going to be the front intake that's your limiting factor? by using that initially, or is it more than likely that you won't have enough tankers in your shuttle route to maintain a thousand gallon per minute flow? My bet is you probably don't have enough tankers to start out at that flow rate. So using the front intake initially and expanding to something a little bit more substantial with a twin tube isn't going to hurt anything, right? You know, I'll take 750 gallons a minute to start while you're calling for more tankers and I'm building my second intake, right? Because again, the positioning requirements are more important than, you know, being able to, uh, you know, get that higher flow rate. And I like to joke around and say, right, I need fast water, right? I don't need big water from the word go. If I needed that, I would try and bring the Atlantic ocean to Tennessee where I am. And that's going to take forever. The fire will burn out. Right. You know, so that's not realistic. I start with something fast and reliable. In my opinion, that's a front intake. Yeah. No, that's, I, I love how you tied, you know, talking about flow versus functionality and tie that into tactics. And, and, you know, a lot of the times, even in the suburban setting, you know, it doesn't have to be rural America. A lot of times our limiting factor are, are our resources on the front end, right? Because, our second due may be two, three minutes out if we're lucky, but then, you know, those third, fourth, fifth due companies can be a ways out. And 
the reality of it is, you know, we have to get something going, right? We have to get something going to apply consistent water. Uh, and, and in most cases, what are we dealing with? It, 90% of the time, it's some sort of residential setting. Um, so when it comes to water supply, I, I 100% agree that you have to have something reliable, you know, and you can build from there. Now, you know, put yourself in a position to build, put yourself in a position if you need to expand that you can. And this is going to circle us back around to uh, going, you know, going into uh, our positioning, going into how we're setting ourselves up for, for success or failure if we fail to plan, right? Um, you know, we, we, you mentioned earlier about, uh, you know, double and triple tap in the hydrant, right? Getting those multiple large diameter hoses off the hydrant or in the drafting world, getting multiple uh, draft intakes, right? Multiple dump tanks going on to get that, you know, to, to allow the incident to expand and, and provide those bigger flows. Um, let's let's hit on that for a second. So hydraulically, let's just talk about, you know, moving water. How significant is it? Just double tap in a hydrant. If I were to take a second five-inch hose and and feed it off a decent hydrant, hydraulically, what what does that do for us? What does that do for a driver uh, compared to only having that single that single five-inch? Yeah, so um, that's that's a great question, and it's one that comes uh, comes up a lot. And before I get into really any of it, operators really need to understand that. You know, you get the biggest bang for your buck from a water supply perspective and hydraulically by simply performing a double tapped hydrant uh, connection. And more importantly, and the probably the most critical um, concept to understand with that is that when you're double tapping that hydrant, you have to use LDH hose. Okay, that's the key. Right, using two and a half or three inch hose on that two and a half inch port really wastes your time. And um, you know, I've done a bunch of flow tests uh, to you know put that into perspective. And actually, that data is uh, published in that in a two part article in Fire Apparatus and Emergency Equipment Magazine. Uh, part one was released in July of this year, and uh, part two is it just got released in August. So um, be on the lookout for that if you want hard, fast data. But there's a lot of uh, really the big thing to understand is whenever we're using a hydrant, we want to be using LDHOs, and we can get really, really into the weeds with this. But it boils down to when I am speaking hydraulically, my goal when I deal with a fire hydrant is to make my outlet opening larger than the inlet opening of the hydrant. Now, most of our fire hydrants, you know, they come in two sizes. Um, the main valve that's actually feeding them comes in two sizes, either a four and a half inch main valve or five and a quarter. Um, the American Water Works Association recommends that municipalities put in a five and a quarter uh, main valve. Um, and if you look at ISO, they actually give you full credit for your hydrants that have five and a quarter main valves in them. So with that being said, when I look at area and convert everything from diameter into area, right, we look at the outlets on that fire hydrant. And most of America, we're dealing with one four and a half inch steamer and two, two and a half inch uh, side ports. And when you convert and do all the math and blah, 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 stuff that most of us don't care about, right, we can do the math and look at 
the area of a four and a half inch steamer plus one two and a half inch outlet side port. When we add those areas together, they equal the same area as a five and a quarter main valve. So the point is if I want to at least equal what's inside the hydrant, I got to use two ports, right? I have to use two ports. If I use the third port, now it's greater and, um, you know, I can, I really will maximize and get the true potential off that hydrant. So speaking in those terms, that's only for, uh, you know, that, 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 that example is only good if we are flowing water directly off the hydrant, we don't hook hose to it. So that's the second part of this, right? Hose has friction in it. So when I add hose to the mix, all the more reason why I have to use the biggest hose available. And when I use small hose, it's going to limit my flow because that fire hydrant can't overcome friction, right? That's the same reason why I want to put a pumper on a hydrant. Fire hydrant can't overcome friction. So I need to use big hose, short lengths going into multiple intakes. So I did a bunch of testing with uh, different size hoses and blah, 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 blah. And, and what I found was when you double tap a fire hydrant with LDH, um, as long as the LDH is longer than, or excuse me, larger in uh, area and diameter than the, the ports that you're connecting, you will see that the water will split. 70% will come out of the steamer port and 30% of the water will go out the side port. So it's a 70-30 split. And when I did the testing, I said to myself, well, that doesn't really seem like a lot. I thought it would be closer to maybe closer to a 50-50 uh, split because I'm using two. And I know that that two and a half uh, you know, has some restriction. But then when you do the math and you think of it from a hydraulic standpoint, you have to remember that friction loss increases a whole lot faster than a change in flow. And we know this because when I double the flow rate through anything, through hose, through a nozzle, through pipe, through anything, when I double the flow rate, the friction loss quadruples. Okay, and we're taught that in our, our, our basic pump operator school. But what, what does that really mean? Well, when we apply it to the fire hydrant, when I take 30% of the total flow out of that steamer port that was originally, if I'm just using that steamer port originally by itself, and I take that flow and put it out the side port that has LDH connected to it. I take 30% out and put it somewhere else. Well, that cuts the friction loss in the hose of that steamer port in half, right? I take 30% out, the friction loss gets cut in half in that main steamer port supply line. And what does all this mean? Well, we'll see this as the operator in terms of we will see a higher residual intake pressure on the pumper, right? And the higher the residual intake pressure, we all know the higher the intake pressure, the more water available. Meaning that if I'm already meeting my flow demands, the higher the resi residual intake pressure, the less work the pumper needs to do. But if I want to flow more water or if I have a higher residual intake pressure, I have to flow more water to lower that residual intake pressure to where it was before right? That, that's what it means, right? That's what that residual intake pressure means. So to sum it all up, if you're double tapping, right, you're going to see higher residual intake pressures. 
but only if you're using LDH. You have to use LDH. And the testing that I did when I just put a two and a half or three inch on there, um, flowing, you know, 2,000 gallons a minute um, through this, uh, the steamer port of a, uh, out of a, a four and a half inch outlet with five inch connected to uh, that steamer port and going into a main inlet on the pumper. We opened that side port with two and a half and the residual intake pressure did not change. So what that tells me is, okay, well, I went through all that work for nothing, no gain. It didn't do anything, right? When we simply switched that two and a half out and put another five inch on that two and a half inch port, right? We got an increase in residual pressure at that same 2000 gallon per minute flow, proving that using larger hose gives you a higher residual intake pressure. And that's because you are reducing the amount of resistance basically in the system, right? Water's a fluid and fluids take the path of least resistance. The bigger the hose, the less resistance, the more it's going to want to split. Okay. So, so double tapping is, is key, but you have to remember you have to use uh, LDH hose. Now for my friends that are using four inch hose, Something interesting happens with 4-inch. You don't see that 70-30 split. Uh, in fact, when you use uh, when you double tap a hydrant with 4-inch hose, what actually happens is you get a 60-40 split. And the reason that is is because when you hook 4-inch hose to the 4.5-inch outlet on your hydrant, the outlet on the hydrant is no longer the limiting factor. The hose that's on that steamer port is a limiting factor. So that's why you get a 60-40 split. And backing up a little bit, when we talk about the, um, when I use like, let's say two five-inch lines, a five-inch on the steamer, a five-inch on the two-and-a-half-inch side port. When I, when I look at it from that perspective, the reason it is a 70-30 split is because when you do the math, a two-and-a-half-inch hole is roughly 30% of a four-and-a-half-inch open. Opening, So that's why you have that 70-30 split right there, because we are literally making those orifices on the hydrant the limiting factor, right? The key is you got to use the biggest hose available to do it. So, and I think I've heard you say this before, you know, two five-inch lines coming off a, a hydrant, right, is the equivalent of what, about a seven and a quarter inch, like industrial, we think, big hose. And and to put that in perspective, is any if anybody's ever seen those industrial size hoses, that is a, that is a big difference in, in orifices. You know, it's, it's the difference between anybody that's ever looked at two and a half versus three inch hose. That half an inch makes a big, big difference. And so does, I mean, even going from four to five inch, that one inch is a substantial, like it's noticeable, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we talk about hydraulics and, and, and really, I love, I love how you break down the, you know, the orifice and, and, and the limiting factors and, you know, how the split happens because, it is important for people that are listening to understand what they have on their rig, right? Because they're going to see slightly different, you know, distribution of water if they're using four inch versus a five inch. And like I said, I mean, if you were to take those two five inches and, and put them together, that alone is giving you the equivalent, like, like I said, of what, seven and a quarter inch fire hose, which is mammoth. I mean, it's the stuff you see on in the ports and these big industrial settings, very, very large hose. And so it really is about, you know, you talk about making the pump work, uh, you know, make the pump work less, right? Making the pump be able to be more efficient. And in doing so, a lot of people think, oh, I got to, you know, 
1250 GPM pump. That's all I can pump. Not the case, right? That's limit. That's based on what? 150 draft. PSI, the RPMs at draft, right? 150 PSI, the RPMs for that particular setting, right? And a, in a certain finite <laughs> world, if you will, in a box. But if you can lower the RPMs, right? And your pump's not having to work as hard or you're not having to, to draft as far or you're able to get positive pressure coming in, we can actually exceed it. And, and, and every time I do pump classes, I, I love watching that light click on the students when they realize that, holy cow, I'm pumping over 2,000 gallons per minute out of this 1,500 GPM pump or whatever. You know, just, just by simply making the pump do less work and being more efficient and allowing more water to come into that pump from multiple directions. And it really does change the game. It, it changes the game if you need big water. Like I said, 90% of the fires we go to, it's not an issue, whatever. We get away with what we do. But when you do need to move that large water, just that single extra five-inch hose is a game changer, yeah? Yeah, and, and you know, to keep it in the simplest terms as possible, right, we all know that the easiest way to get more volume out of anything is to increase the area of whatever we're flowing water through. And we can prove this by simply looking at a stack set on a, on a deck gun, right? So at 80 pounds, I know that an inch and three-eighths tip flows 500 gallons a minute at 80 psi okay great if i take that inch and three-eighths tip off and go to a two-inch tip right at that same nozzle pressure i've doubled the volume coming out right so same thing when we're talking about big water out of a out of a, a pumper the bigger the inlet area or the more intakes i use the more water i can cut, get into the pump the more discharges I use on the discharge side, the more water I can get out. So it kind of ties both what we started talking about before together, right? Parallel supply lines, multiple discharges, all right? On the intake side of the pump, we got to be using multiple intakes to get that water in. Big area in, big area out equals big volume period, right? Yeah, 100%. So – you know, on that note, um, I wanted to touch briefly. Uh, one of the one of the things you bring up in your article, I was perusing uh, some of your stuff before we got on here today, and I just just a good reminder, right? And 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 that is, you know, we get taught this whole don't let your your intake drop below twenty psi, right? You kind of touched on it, you know, talking about water in all that kind of stuff a little bit ago, but I want to kind of circle around to this real quick. Um, everybody gets this taught you know i was taught the same thing when i when i started driving don't let your your master intake gauge drop below 20 pounds um and there's some science behind that there's some reasons you know the water department will tell you like yeah 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 but that's not the whole story right and as most of us that have been around pump operations for an extended period of time realize like that's not a hard and fast like you can go all the way down to basically zero and still not cavitate and, and flow water, depending on what your water supply operation is. Um, not ideal, but but I wanted to touch about, you know, kind of what you were talking about in your article about really that 20 pounds is not at our intake gauge on our apparatus. It's actually at the water source, right? At the hydrant. Um, and because a lot of people, it's a misnomer. They think that, you know, oh, I'm at 20, I got to stop. I have no more water to give. When in all reality, the hydrant, depending on how far away they are from the hydrant, you know, what kind of setup they have going on, 
may be perfectly fine. That 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 water main is not in any real jeopardy because it's actually you know thirty plus pounds still available at the hydrant. But because of friction loss in our hose and things like that, you know we have twenty pounds at our intake gauge. So um, let's talk about that for a minute because I think that that's uh, for a lot of folks that are in those roles. They they really they've been told this stuff for years, but no one's been able to explain why. And where that came from to in a lot of these cases. And I think guys that go around and what you're doing, you know, educating people on the, the science behind why and, and why these rules have come about and things like that is very important because if people understand the why, they know where they can flirt with with going. You know, there's it's not a hard and fast rule, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And there are times where you may have less than 20 pounds on your master intake gauge and it'd be perfectly fine flowing additional water. And it's not one of those things they got to, oh, the, the sky's falling chicken little. Um, there is more water available and it isn't the end of the world. And we can do this if we need to in big fires um, and really just kind of clear the air on that. Because I think, you know, people get told a lot of stuff, like you said at the beginning of the show, that it's anecdotal or it's only half true or people can't explain the why. And I think for people listening that are that are interested in this kind of stuff, I would venture to say there's some folks asking, well, that's what I've been told. Why isn't that true? Why, you know, what do you mean that it's at the hydrant, not the pumper, you know, and, and what do you mean that I, you know, I can go below 20 pounds and my chief, you know, is my chief going to freak out or are we going to collapse the water mains? Or are we going to cavitate the pump? And because that's what I was told when I started pumping uh, years ago, years and years ago, I, my first captain told me, well, you can't go below 20 pounds or you're in, you're, you're in jeopardy of cavitating your pump. And then I started training and I was like, well, I just wanted to see what happened, you know? So I started going, I was like, I'm down to 10 pounds. I'm not cavitating. What do you mean? <laughs> so I started asking questions, same thing, you know, like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. He said, I'm going to cavitate the pump and I'm rock hard supply line here doing my thing. So um, I just wanted to kind of dive in on that a little bit because I think people don't understand where that rule came from. And I think that people don't really truly understand a lot of times what their limitations are, what they really can do um, in, in moving big water if necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the first thing that I want to, I want to say before, you know, getting into too much, um, by no means are we trying to knock what our forefathers have taught or, you know, say that they were saying anything wrong. Um, and a lot of this is simply the, the reason that this, that, that firemen say, uh, you can't go below 20 pounds is simply because, they didn't have any other way of knowing it. Right. right. So, uh, and that'll make sense here. In right. a minute, but yeah. Let, yeah. Let, let me, let me back that up. That's, yeah, no, 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 I, know, I, mean, I, I agree. Yeah, I don't no. think that you're trying to say any of that. I just know that sure. um, I don't, I don't want anybody to think that, yep. right. We're, we're trying to, trying to bash anybody or, or a thought process. So. No, I think it's, it's just a testament to our, our anecdotal way of, you know, stuff gets passed down and sometimes gets yeah. lost in translation from generation to generation. And I think that's, you know, there was well, there's good meaning behind it and there was well intent behind it. Um, I think that, like I said, a lot of stuff was just one of those things that had been passed down from one generation to the next. And, and folks don't know the why, right? right? And, and that's, that's what that's, it boils down to. Yep, they just don't understand where it came from. And so they don't, they kind of operate in this tight box of like, this is how it has to be always. And that's, not always the case once you understand the, the how and the why and the, and the background behind those those things. So, well, let's be real, right? Firemen like simple and tried and true, always do this, never do that, right? And we all know that nothing in the fire service is always and never, right? So, with all that being said, right, it's in, in order to understand this, it's really important to understand um, 
under what conditions fire hydrants are rated to flow their maximum volume. So there are two conditions that fire hydrants are rated to flow their rated maximum volume. And that's at 20 PSI residual main pressure and with all the outlet openings, open and flowing water. So under those two conditions, when I say it's a 1,500 gallon per minute hydrant, it's at 20 PSI residual main pressure with all the outlets being used. Okay, so why 20 PSI? Why 20 PSI? Well, that's because um, the American Water Works Association says that they don't ever want the residual main pressure in a system, in a municipal water supply system, to drop below 20 PSI. And there's a couple reasons for that. Is there a risk of collapsing mains? Yeah, uh, potentially if you're dealing with older mains that aren't well-maintained, blah, 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 blah. But the bigger reason, the bigger concern is if you drop the residual main pressure below 20 PSI, there is the potential that you can cause a backflow in the system and you can bring dirty water into the potable drinking water that the, your, your municipal fire hydrants are connected to and you can contaminate the water system and people can get sick and die, right? That's, I mean, that's what it boils down to, uh, no pun intended. So that 20 PSI rule, right? That's where that comes from. Now, I was taught the same thing. You can't let your intake gauge go below 20 pounds because you might cavitate. And, and that always makes me laugh because the, there's a, a misunderstanding of what cavitation really is. When I'm hooked to a fire hydrant, Really, the laws of physics say I can't really cavitate. What what will happen is I'll suck the supply line in before I truly cavitate. But we'll talk about that in a minute. So anyway, the 20 PSI rule. The only way that I really know, right, and, and this is where people, I'd like to joke around and say that the fire department is really good at understanding what goes on with our fire engine from the discharge side of the pump all the way to the intake or all the way to the nozzle of the, of the attack line, right? We're really good at that. We get that pretty good. The municipal water supply uh, authority, municipal water authority, they're really good at knowing their system and getting water to the fire hydrant. But there's this Bermuda triangle with water supply that occurs from the hydrant outlet to the pumper's intake. And this is where all these wild, you know, you're going to, you know, like you said, chicken little things are going to fall. The sky's going to fall. All this stuff is going to blow up. The world's going to end if you do this, 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 and this, right? So what's really going on is that we have to remember that supply line has friction loss in it, right? So there's friction from the fire hydrant to the pumper. And depending on the pumper and what intake we're using, there's friction from the intake through the plumbing to the eye of the impeller. So, so I mean, there, there's a lot of potential for slowing down that water. Now, we have to remember, we have to remember that strong fire hydrants mean that they can flow a large volume of water. So if I can flow a lot of water, that means that there's even more friction, which means that you know, it's even more important to double and triple tap these hydrants, blah, blah, blah. So the only way you truly know if you're operating safely is to have a gauge on the hydrant. And that is something that really nobody is doing. Uh, it's not something that our forefathers did. 
It's not something that even most departments nowadays do. And I can be completely honest and tell you why that is. It's because no manufacturers currently are making a hydrant gate valve with a gauge attached to it. Now, I have two that were made by Task Force Tips for me to play around with, and we're, we're waiting for them to make a product number for them so folks can buy them. But um, my gauges or my setup, it's a, it's a valve, and on the intake side of the valve, there's a gauge. So no matter what, as long as you put your hydrant gauge or, excuse me, gate valve on or whatever you want to call it on the hydrant initially when you're getting ready to double tap, you'll always have a reading of the hydrant pressure. And here's what we want to remember. We don't want the, uh, the residual main pressure in the hydrant to drop below 20 pounds because that is what's connected to the municipal drinking water. And that's what can cause problems. That means that I can have my pumper at 10 or 5 or, you know, borderline zero, right, and still be good. And there's a lot of reasons why the gauge is important because I've been flowing 2,000, 2,500, 3,000 gallons a minute off of a hydrant that's double and triple tapped. I've had zero on the intake or damn near close, five, you know, five or 10, right? But the hydrant gauge is reading 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or even 60, depending on the hydrant. So what that tells you is that there is a lot of friction loss from that hydrant through the hose going into the intakes, right? That's what it's telling you. And I can be flowing that volume of water safely. I'm not doing anything wrong because I'm well above my 20 PSI rule at the main. And that's what's important, right? Now, on the flip side, if I have a really bad hydrant, Right. And that's why it's important for the operator, one, to have this piece of equipment, but to look at both readings. Because I was dealing, uh, teaching a class in uh, Gallatin, Tennessee, where we were using, in one of the scenarios, we we're using a yellow top hydrant. So we know that hydrant is not going to flow more than a thousand gallons a minute. And these guys had hooked up, they, they had, you know, done a heavy hook, doing all their thing. They're reading 20 pounds at their pump intake, right? But when they go to the hydrant, the hydrant is also reading 20 pounds. So that tells me this is a bad hydrant. If I lower it below 20 pounds on my pump intake, I'm also lowering it below the acceptable amount for the municipal water supply system and I can do damage. So what the moral of the story is bad hydrants, right? That gauge on the hydrant will probably match what's at your pumper intake, right? Strong hydrants, your green tops, your blue tops, there will be a difference, right? The pumper will be lower than what's at the, at the hydrant itself. So it's not, uh, it's not as simple as saying, because some people will take this to mean, oh, well, I can take the intake gauge below 20. That's not going to hurt anything. That's not a hundred percent right because, like I said, right. if you have that if you have that weaker hydrant, taking it below twenty could truly be doing damage to your system. So you really need a piece of equipment that's measuring something as close to the municipal water supply system as we can get. And for us in our world, that's putting it right on that hydrant outlet, on that two and a half inch outlet. Right? Yeah, Be beautifully explained. Um, it's. 
the rules there for a reason. It's just I think Ben misexplained, uh, or, you know, poorly explained sometimes, or not explained uh, through the years, and and I couldn't have a beautiful, beautiful explanation of what we're looking at. Uh, I, I would like to see, you know, obviously, I'm sure you feel the same way, uh, those gauges becoming standard place so that we actually know what we're looking at and, and can know with some certainty, you know, to some extent, obviously, you, there's always outlying variables, but with some confidence, if we need a little extra water, we can get a little more squeeze, you know, and that's knowing that is, is huge, right? Because if, like I said, if, if I got, a you know, 20 pounds on my intake gauge, but I've got 40 pounds on my hydrant gauge. I'm just throwing arbitrary numbers out there, but that's a big, that's a big difference, right? That tells me I've got some water to work with still that's at that hydrant. That's not, you know, necessarily at my intake gauge in my truck, you know, and, and in that situation, you know, um, that's the other thing too, is just by simply adding that, that, that double tap in that hydrant and getting that second LDH, uh, if you have a strong hydrant, you're going to gain that extra water and you're, and you're going to get that residual intake gauge number to, to rise, right? We're going to get that number to come up, which means, yeah, we got more water to play with. So uh, you mentioned triple tapping, and I just want to touch on this briefly. If you have a strong hydrant, how much of an advantage is having that third large diameter hose coming into your apparatus? What, 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 you know, what are some of the numbers you've seen um, with, with triple tapping versus double tapping? or triple tapping versus a single LDH coming off the hydrant? Yeah, so I tell folks that your your minimum go-to supply setup, you should be setting yourself up to at least double tap because that's where you're going to see the most bang for your buck. When you triple tap, you are truly maximizing that hydrant's capability. However, you probably, depending on the hydrant, you might not see a lot of gain. And a lot of people will take that to mean hey, it's not worth it. For me, this is what I tell people. I break it down into two different scenarios for me. If I'm driving a supply piece on the initial alarm assignment, I probably am not going to take the time to put two gate valves on the hydrant and fully dress the hydrant. And there's a couple reasons for that. Number one is time, right? The, 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 the goal, again, is functionality. I want to get water quick but also leave myself an out to expand if I need to. And by throwing one gate valve on there, I can do that. The second reason is what I have found is at least, and even in the department that I worked for, my pumper only carried one gate valve. So I couldn't throw two on to the ears. I didn't have the equipment to do it. The only way I would have to do that in the field is use an adapter to go straight to that two and a half but that means that I also have to hook the hose up from the word go in order to be able to turn a hydrant on. So that, um, again, boils back down to time, right? The time it takes to now have to hook two just to be set up. So on an initial supply, you know, first alarm assignment to a residential or commercial fire, double tapping is my go-to. But now if I'm getting pulled in to make a secondary water supply or if I'm going on a mutual uh, mutual aid assignment and I'm being tasked with supplying a tower ladder or, or doing something a little bit more substantial, that tells me I have the time to, to fully dress that hydrant. So those are the scenarios for me that I'm triple tapping right off the bat, right? That Those are triple tap scenarios. And, um, you know, will you get a little bit more water compared to the double tap? Yes. Um, is it enough to argue? I, I mean, for most of us, probably not. 
I'm not telling you not to triple tap. I'm telling you that from a functional standpoint on the initial alarm, double tapping is key for the, the second, third, fourth, fifth alarm assignment where big water is needed, triple tap it. to So that way, you know, without a doubt, I'm maximizing this water supply system 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and have you seen a difference? Let me, let me back this up even further. Um, four inch versus five inch LDH. Do you see more of an advantage of, of the triple tap with a four inch versus a five inch? Um, obviously the five inch, depending on the hydrant, like you said earlier, may not see a whole lot of yield versus a four inch where maybe, maybe does that, does that triple tap give you a little bit more just because yeah, so of the hose? It's more, it's more critically important for departments that are running four inch to triple tap because of the friction loss in the hose that they're using. Right. And that's why, you know, um, in my perfect world, the only the only connections that I would be making to hydrants, you know, hydrant to pumper would be five inch or six inch hose. And this is why and, you know, I'm a huge advocate of six inch supply hose, not a whole bed, just a couple pony lengths, nothing longer than 25 foot. But I'm a huge advocate for six inch hose because hydraulically speaking, a single six inch hose is the equivalent of two four inch hoses. So I can flow the same volume of water with the same amount of loss through one six that I can two fours. So where I worked in Charlottesville, we, you know, we put six inch hose on our front intakes when we were building a, a couple pumpers. And, um, you know, the biggest advantage there was I basically double tap the hydrant with one connection. Right. And then, it, by, you know, by double tapping the hydrant i really triple tapped it because i had one six off the steamer which is really two fours and then when i put a four on the side port that's my third four right so i'm triple tapping uh with two connections so that's the advantage of the bigger hose yeah hy hydraulically i mean it's just it makes sense um you know and, and just kind of on a rabbit trail side note um talking about NFPA specs, you know, and, and plumbing. And um, let's, let's talk about tank to pump for a second, because yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to share a story. I went to a fire and I had an officer tell me that they wanted uh, the, the Ram monitor and a two and a half inch cross lay with an inch and a quarter tip uh, to flow simultaneously off tank water. And I'm looking, I'm like, this isn't going to work. And they're like, doing it, you know, do it. <laughs> and of course we did. And we didn't have great results. And you know, cavitated the pump and yeah. essentially, uh, and, and just, you know, did not successfully perform that operation. And a lot of people don't realize that NFPA 1901 only requires that that tank to pump, uh, that tank to pump, uh, piping be, be capable of supplying 500 gallons per minute. That's the only requirement. And so that's what happened to us that day. The, the plumbing was the limiting factor on being able to supply that operation. And, you know, we got back from the fire and they're like, we've, we've flown this, we've flowed this before, both of these. I said, yes, but we had a positive water supply. Yeah, right. It's a big difference, right? So, so big for those difference. out there that, uh, you know, when you're specking your apparatus, you can spec a bigger tank to pump to exceed that, that 500 GPM uh, off tank water. Say you have a big tanker, the tanker pumper. Uh, you can certainly spec those, those pipes to be bigger uh, to allow more water to pass into the pump. However, if you don't spec it, they're going to do the minimum, which is yeah. 500 gallons. So you could have a 3,000-gallon tanker with a pump on it, and you're only going to get 
500 gallons per minute from that tank to pump. And I think that that's, that's something too, you know, you talk about apparatus, you know, specs and, and being on those committees. So these are some of the things that I think that really get overlooked sometimes. And we don't put enough emphasis on the details of our plumbing and how things are set up. You know, we talked about the operation a couple of years ago up at the lake where we had a 30, almost a 30 PSI difference between two, two and a half inch discharges supplying a RAM monitor with the same amount of hose, same nozzle, the whole kit and caboodle. And we get this one's you have to be pumped this much higher than the other one. And it comes down to plumbing. It comes down to hydraulics. And uh, unfortunately, as, as a service, I don't know that sometimes we do a very good job of, of picking the manufacturer's brains and and doing the math and, and knowing what the minimum specs are and requirements and things like that. Um, and you mentioned you sat on some apparatus committees and, and, and part of those specking those things out. Uh, how important is it to really read the fine print and know that what you're actually putting on your truck? When it comes to particularly when it comes to pumping apparatus, when it comes to how you set up, how many intakes you have, what size they are, what size discharges you have, um, because certainly all that correlates to what you can what the capability of that pumper truly is. Right. That's that really is what, you know, the devil's in the details. And that couldn't be more true when it comes to the world of water supply and fire apparatus. Well, uh, you know, you hit on a great point and, and, you know, for folks, and I get this question a lot and I just want to throw it before I forget it, but, uh, you know, you bring up that 500 gallon per minute tank to pump flow rate and that, that is in the NFPA standard. And a lot of times I get folks that have rigs that might be a little bit older uh, and they'll ask me, Hey, why does this rig have two tank to pump lines? And I tell them, well, that's because the folks that were building that truck recognized that they wanted to be able to flow more than 500 gallons a minute. So they put dual tank to pump lines on there. I've come across a couple of those rigs here in Tennessee and, you know, they'll do up to a thousand gallons a minute off their booster tank. So that fire department for, for whatever point, for whatever reason said that that's a potential that we will need and we need to be able to flow this from our booster tank. Right. So, um, you know, to, to your apparatus question, I tell folks it is so important that any apparatus committee have a copy of NFPA 1901. And I don't really care if people, because I know a lot of people, you know, hate NFPA and oh, we don't have to follow that, blah, blah, blah. Whether you like it or hate it, right, that's what your apparatus manufacturers are going to build your truck to. That's the minimum standard. You need a copy of that. Every apparatus committee should have a copy of that, and it should be at every single meeting that you have when you're talking about this rig. When you go to pre-construction, bring a copy of it, right, um, because it outlines the minimum standards. Now, if you want to exceed that, right, at least you know where the baseline is, and you can, of course, exceed that. And another thing to to think about, too, personally, is, um, you know, a lot of people will get into the details and say, we want the plumbing to be, you know, five inch by, or whatever it is. Rather than specify something like that, I tell folks, specify it in a performance-based fashion. Rather than trying to tell the engineer what you think that they should put on there, say, this discharge or this intake or whatever should be capable of flowing X GPM, whatever that is. Let the engineers figure out one, how to do it or two, if they can, right? That's why they're engineers. You give them a performance that you want them to do. Don't try and design it from your end of the table, right? Let them do that. Um, 
And then the other thing from a, a spec and layout standpoint, for me, um, I want intakes on all four sides of my rig, right? Because that gives me options. Yes, some intakes are better, but it's still options, right? Because not every scenario is the same. Today, I might be using a side intake. Tomorrow, I might want to use a front intake for my positioning. Um, and with that being said, I like having discharges on all sides of the rig. And I know that kind of sounds, well, yeah, duh. But, you know, I, I've been on some, I've lost some battles. Uh, and one, one of them was uh, where I worked in Charlottesville. You know, the driver's side of the pump panel had no two and a half inch discharges. The only thing that was on the driver's side of the panel was an intake. And the concern by the majority of the committee was they were afraid that if they had a discharge on the driver's side of the rig, that could blow off and hurt the operator because they're right there. While that is true, we know that firefighting is a dangerous activity, blah, blah, blah. For me, the functionality that I lost on scenarios like leader lines or FDC operations or, you know, whatever ground monitor scenarios um, was not worth that. And that's something that the fire department needs to decide. I'm not trying to say that that was a bad decision. I did not like that decision. I want to be able to flow water on all four sides of the rig. I want to be able to get water on all, all four sides of the rig. And, um, you know, something else that uh, I particularly am a fan of, especially with rear rear preconnects, um, and there is a little bit more plumbing associated to it, but I like my discharges to come all the way to the tailboard of the rig because it's dual purpose, right? And I like to plumb them with two and a half inch pipe because now it's a higher flow but it's dual purpose. So I can have a pre-connect that's pre-connected to that two and a half that just hangs right down. But if I don't, if this isn't a pre-connect fire and I'm doing leader lines or something where I don't need a pre-connect, I break that and I have another discharge right there. Right. Or if I'm doing a, you know, I'm a supply pumper and I'm doing a parallel supply line operation, I don't need pre-connects, but I might need that two and a half inch discharge to feed into that manifold that we were talking about. In addition to, um, your LDH discharge. Um, and, and one other thing that, that I recommend that folks do is once you take delivery of your rig, it is, it's a little nerdy and it's a little work, but it is advantageous to flow test your discharges. Um, you know, that's something in Charlottesville, what we, uh, what we spec because we were running four inch hose, but we had a tower ladder that had a 2000 gallon per minute waterway. Um, and when we were, when we built our latest engine spec, all of our engines now that are being purchased, what we spec is one four inch LDH discharge. And then on the passenger side of the rig, instead of doing the very common two, two and a half inch discharges, we increase the plumbing size to three inch pipe. And then they, they have elbows that have four inch storts connection that go down to two and a half. So the beauty of that is if we were doing a parallel supply line operation, because we knew we would have to do that with the four inch hose to supply the tower ladder, right? We didn't have to get manifolds involved. We could simply hook the four inch, the LDH discharge, and then the, the three inch LDH discharge. Um, and now we were able to s simplify that operation 
um, if we had to do it. Uh, and with all that being said, the importance of flow testing all of those discharges on the rig, you know, I knew that on my rig, my two and a half inch discharges off the rear and off the front, I could flow 500 gallons a minute out of them with a minimal amount of friction loss. The standard says they only need to flow 250. So that's a plus. The three inch discharge, or excuse me, the four inch LDH discharge, I was able, uh, you know, I can flow a thousand gallons a minute and that discharge only had 15 pounds of loss. The three inch discharge above it could flow a thousand gallons a minute with 40 pounds of loss. And then the other one that was kind of offset because of plumbing could flow a thousand gallons a minute with 80 pounds of internal loss. So that was really important because I knew, all right, now I have an order of operations. First supply line goes into the four inch LDH discharge. Supply line number two goes into the one above that because it has the least amount of loss out of the two three inch plumb lines. And then that other one is my last ditch effort if I had to supply another um, uh, supply line or, or something like that. So it just gives you an idea of uh, what the good discharges are versus the, the bad discharges. And what we found, even, even something as simple as our deck gun, right? You know, in our, in our regular pumper driver operator program, we're taught with a deck gun, right? You, if it's a smooth bore, it's 80 pounds for the nozzle pressure and you add 25 for appliance loss. So everybody's pumping them usually at 105 period. Well, by flow testing our deck gun, I knew at 500 gallons a minute, I only needed to pump at 80 pounds because the plumbing was so good. And at a thousand gallons a minute, I only had to pump at 95 pounds because the plumbing was that good. It was plumbed really well. So there's another, you know, that's an advantage of flow testing your discharges as well. Not to mention the importance of flow testing, you know, your hose and nozzles in addition to, you know, on your pre-connected lines and coming up with a pump chart for that. That's really important as well. Yeah, I mean, it really, you know, from, from the water source to our pump, through our plumbing, to the, the hose, to the nozzles, it's a complete package. It's a package deal. And whatever your weak point is in that operation is going to be whatever your limiting factor is, right? That's what it comes down to is, you know, where are your weak points? Where are your, you know, where are you going to most likely uh, find issues? Um, and the only way to know that is you have to get out and you have to, you have to flow it. You have to put water through it. You have to put gauges on stuff. And, you know, it was amazing. We got to a couple new pumpers a few years ago and it was amazing to me how, different based on the discharge location uh and and the hose that we were using and that's the other thing too we got new hose guess what we had to go back and redo the numbers because the hose that we bought was higher performing hose than what we had previously had and it changed our numbers pretty pretty dramatically in a couple yeah. couple situations and so uh as drivers though you got to get in the weeds a little bit sometimes you got to go out and figure out what you like like, like you said that the strongest discharges where you know where can you get the most water What's your next best discharge? You know, if you have to do big water, what's the most efficient and effective way of getting this done? And, uh, you know, specking apparatus, I, I, I'm a firm believer that it should not be strictly chief officers on this. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I just think that put, put some driver operators that are really dialed in on those committees. Number one, they're the ones that are going to be operating them. Number two, 
I feel like they're probably going to think a little more functional, a little bit more like, you know, they're going to think back to training evolutions and fires that they've had that is probably going to drive some better decision-making than guys sitting up there, oh, we just need four two-and-a-half discharges or whatever, you know, and just put them wherever. <laughs> I just think that that's, to me, that's the most, if you want to get the most out of a committee, those are the people you want on that committee, in, in, in my personal opinion. Oh, absolutely. Um, but it's good for morale, too. Right. 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 It's great for morale. It, it, it gives folks buy-in. Uh, uh, you know, for me, the best committees have been, you know, one chief officer, maybe one or two captains, or somebody that's going to ride that right front seat, um, a handful of operators, and one or two firemen, right? Because, I mean – you know, the chief and the departments that I worked in, chief don't ride the pumper, right? They don't ride the pumper. So, you know, having a committee full of chiefs, um, you get a pretty rig, but I don't know how functional it is all the time, right? I think you're still muted. There we go. I got it. <laughs> No, that's that's 100% it, man. It, it is uh... – the guys that are riding the rigs that are actually doing the work typically have a good idea what works, what doesn't work, you know, and, and it's amazing though, how many times those guys get left out of the, out of the picture. And it's like, man, you know, those are the people that have such a wealth of, of firsthand experience and knowledge and, and current practices and current fires and the buildings in the district and that, that are doing the job. And, and they're going to look at the, you know, the previous apparatus and they're going to, I guarantee if you went to any firehouse right now, you can sit down with with the crews and they'll tell you the good things and the bad things about their current apparatus, right? They're going to tell you the things that this works really, really well. And this was a good idea, but it didn't work out as well as we thought it was going to work out. Or, right. hey, this was an oversight. We, we missed this. So we should have done this. Right. And so, yeah, absolutely. Those those are the way you know, to me. If you want to if you want a truly uh, well-rounded committee. Get some guys that are on the line from the firefighter, you know, from the tailboard to the drivers to the officers, you know, maybe like one or two chiefs in there just for oversight. Because obviously there's budget constraints and things like yep. that that we have to look at. I get that. But I think you're going to get more honest input if you have those type of guys on the committee. So uh, we talked about, um, you know, some of this a little bit ago. We kind of just breezed over it. But you brought up dual pumping. And for for guys on the East Coast, this is this is uh, at least in my experience, this seems like I get a lot of this. Well, that's a West Coast thing. Um, but but I want to get your thoughts on dual pumping. I personally love it in certain circumstances. I think that it has a lot of merit, uh, especially you know in in certain tactical situations um, and and really just for redundancy. I think uh, when we're when we're doing a fire ground, you know an advanced fire ground, especially where you've got multiple lines going, things like that. Um, I just want to get your take on it. I think it builds redundancy into the pump operation. Uh, I also think that it gives us uh, some flexibility with, with certain types of fires, but uh, I just wanted to, you brought it up just kind of in passing early. I wanted to pick your brain on that a little bit on your thoughts on dual pumping, when it's applicable, when maybe it's not so great and, you know, love it, hate it just whatever about it. I mean, what, what do you think about it? Dual pumping is my favorite water supply tactic. I love dual pumping and uh, I'll do it anytime I can uh, be, because it, it does a couple things for me. Yes, it, it, uh, it is redundant, but it also really makes water supply operations uh, pretty simple. So, you know, there, there was, there was one fire that I operated at um, and 
you know, I, I was operating as a second due pumper and had I do understood the concept of dual pumping, it would have made the whole operation a million times easier. So the scenario was, uh, engine one, uh, and this ended up being a double fatality fire with, uh, it was a, a homicide and an arson all tied into one. So it was, the scene was a mess. It was a chaotic mess, right? So the first two engine, engine one, they, uh, they pulled in, did not lay a supply line, uh, and they parked pretty much right in front of the house. And, you know, the truck guys were pissed off, but whatever. I'm driving a second do engine, and um, I stopped at the hydrant, wrapped in, performed the forward lay, and I parked on the corner of the house. And the guys uh, on engine one obviously pulled an attack line. My guys on my crew, they pulled uh, the backup line off my rig, and they knew that I wasn't going to charge their line until I got a supply. So the way our department had operated in the past was, um, you know, prior to all of this, was my responsibility was to pull my supply line, break it, and give it to engine one, and then run to the hydrant and turn the hydrant on, which had a four-way hydrant valve. So that's what I did. Well, the stupid part was engine one had a 500-gallon tank. And engine seven that I was driving had 750 gallons of water in a booster tank sitting there that was just sitting there, right? So what I should have done, looking back now, is I should have booster backed up, gave engine one my tank water, and now they would have had 1,250 gallons of water while I then ran back to the hydrant, turned the hydrant on. And then we could have dual pumped intake to intake and fed me, right? So what ended up happening is as um, as I got water supply from the hydrant to engine one, engine one gave me a, a feed from their discharge to my intake to feed my attack lines. And the problem was engine one was pumping at about 140 or whatever it was for their attack lines. Um, and I really, I was within 100 foot of engine one. I only needed about 50 or 60 pounds. And engine one had an electronic discharge valve, so he couldn't gate it really well. So I was either getting blasted with too much pressure, or when he gated it back, I was starved, right? So we're playing this balancing game the whole fire. Now, we could have eliminated all of that by simply going intake to intake or dual pumping, and I would have received the leftover water from the hydrant that engine one wasn't work or using. And the beautiful thing about all of that would have been that engine one would have hit would have had his intakes all the way open, his discharges all the way open, and he would have had full control of his throttle. I would have had my intake all the way open, my discharges all the way open, and full control of my throttle. So um, dual pumping is a fantastic tactic that can uh, you know build and expand however we need to. Uh, had that fire gotten bigger, we could have reversed out from my engine to another one of my intakes to another hydrant. And now both these pumpers would have received water from both sides and we would have created what I call an above ground loop system. So, um, you know, I know I talked about a couple different things right there, but, you know, the one thing that I really love that, um, you know, 
dual pumping is a great ta- uh, option for is this idea of the booster backup. And depending on where you go, I know that that takes a lot of different um, different shapes and forms and, and everything like that. But um, my, my personal thought is I don't like to get into the uh, habit of telling fire departments you should always perform a forward lay as the attack pumper or you should never perform a forward lay as the attack pumper. Um, there's a lot of valid reasons for both, in my opinion, and it's completely based on staffing, response times, where engines are coming from. There are too many variables for me to say, you should always do this in your department and, you know, blah, 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 right? Um, so, you know, with all of that being said, if the attack engine does not perform a forward lay, I particularly will not knock them for that, right? If they go right into the, the fire scene and pull a line and start doing aggressive interior firefighting, that's fine. In my mind, what that means is the second do should perform that forward lay by wrapping the hydrant and, and laying in. Um, and either leaving a four-way hydrant valve at the at the hydrant, or if if the third engine is close behind, or or you know something like that, the third engine is going to assume the responsibility of connecting to that fire hydrant and pumping the hydrant in some form. But anyway, right? Second, do lays that line positions appropriately. In my mind, their priority first priority is to engage their pump, get a supply line two and a half or three inch, not LDH, from their discharge to that first attack engine's intake, their auxiliary intake. And now they're just going to pump their tank water to uh, the first two engine and essentially double their tank, right? Um, and, and I know that's, that's referred to in a lot of places as the booster backup, probably pretty common. Now, where people get into some discussions, and I'll give my two cents, is now, where does engine two, engine two is obviously going to break their supply line out of their bed, but where does that supply line go? Does it go into engine two's intake or does it go to engine one? And there's, there's two reasons why I personally am going to give it to engine one, the attack piece. One, they're the attack piece. They need the water. They're the priority 100%. So that supply line is going to go to their uh, LDH intake, wherever that is, right? Whether it's the driver's side, the passenger side, a rear, whatever it is, we're going to hook that. And then at that point, we'll, we'll get the, the water supply charged and engine one has, has a supply. The other reason why I'm not going to give it to engine two is because when the supply gets made, now I'm back into that scenario that I just painted that I was in on that fire where I'm blasting him with too much pressure. That simply isn't needed, right? I'm over pumping engine one. So by giving it to engine one, I, I'm giving the priority, the water that they need, but I'm also not killing them with too much pressure. And here is where a beautiful tactic or, or a beautiful opportunity for dual pumping emerges is engine two is going to have to refill their booster tank. But if I need to start pulling a third or a fourth line, Rather than, and the department that I worked for, we were really bad about pulling every single damn line off one engine. We put all our eggs in one basket. Whereas, you know, from a tactical best practice standpoint, that's probably not the best option, right? I can start pulling the third or the fourth line, fifth line off of engine two 
And now all I have to do is get a water source, and that's where I'll dual pump from engine one to engine two. And now either the hydrant pressure alone is feeding both rigs or engine three that's hooked to the hydrant is pumping down and feeding both rigs, whether that's through a direct hydrant heavy hookup or through a four-way hydrant valve operation, whatever it ends up being. But both rigs have, have their water supply. They're dual pumped. They have full control of their throttles. Their intakes are all the way open. Their discharges are, are open and everything is, is good and happy. Yeah, that's uh, I, I I agree. I think the, the the primary attack pumper has to be your priority first and foremost, right? Those oh, are guys, especially guys that are in an offensive operational mode. Uh, that's where the water needs to go. Um, and like you said, do you want to be in the same situation where you got to, you know, and I've heard people argue that, well, the second engine should have the water supply tied into it because they're already booster backup feeding the the first apparatus, but in most cases, that's a two and a half or a three inch line. Now you're choking down this water supply and still having to pump, you know, to that other engine. And, and people say, well, just run an LDH uh, from your your LDH discharge to their their other, you know, to their intake. But again, I, I feel like that goes back to the same situation where now you have engine two having to pump and throttle up and give them enough water for engine one to operate. Um, you know, it just seems like you're you're really it's not a very efficient use of water. Whereas if engine one gets the priority, they get the booster water initially. And then the attack, uh, you know, the, the attack pumpers getting that supply line coming in. Um, you're getting that water to those guys that need it the most. Now, now, yeah. if you have a good hydrant, a good water supply, I think, like you said, dual pumping gives you so much redundancy. Number one, it gives you the redundancy. If for some reason, you know, engine one were to have some sort of catastrophic pump failure. Uh, you've basically created a big manifold that water can flow through the eye of the pump. And that's the beauty of dual pumping. It's going through one side of your intake, through the eye of the pump and out the other side. It's not going through all this extra plumbing, through discharge plumbing uh, to a discharge back to that to that apparatus. So uh, you're basically just creating a massive manifold that water is flowing through to that second truck. And, you know, like you said, I think uh, tactical best practice Maybe we should look at pulling some additional lines. We start getting that third, fourth, fifth line off the truck. Maybe some of those lines should come off that apparatus. That's uh, that's you know that second view apparatus um, to give some some you know like you said that safety factor of like hey you know what we it's not all in one basket here. So if you know engine one goes down, we still have a couple lines in operation that are functional right here. Um, that being said, you know perfect case in point. I tell people like dual pumping. This is like one of those things that always pops into my mind, right? In a residential setting, that's kind of the, the afterthought redundancy factor, right? Or bigger operations, you can expand it. It's a beautiful thing. But even on the front end, um, let's say you go to a strip mall. I know in, in my case, we had two pre-connected two and a halfs on our pumpers, right? Two. And we had, you know, both pumpers were set up that way, you know, a couple miles apart, whatever. And, and in most cases, the reality of it is most fire departments don't have more than two, two and a half pre-connects so uh let's say you go to a commercial fire what's the size hose we typically pull in commercial fires two and a half inch hose line you got a couple units that are burning say in the middle of a strip mall or taxpayer or whatever uh if you go to those operations by default guys are going to default to two and a half inch hose because it's commercial well if you have two units that are burning in the middle of a strip mall you're going to pull at least one to one unit one to another unit right most likely and then you have exposure issues you have extension issues where are those other two, two and a halfs coming from? Well, I got a couple options. I can pull a shit ton of hose off engine two and hook it into engine one, but now engine one has to pump all four of those two and a halfs to the exposures in the two fire units. That's a thousand gallons a minute. 
and the pump's going to have to work harder. Or I can just tie in my water supply from engine one, dual pump to engine two, and both pumpers can, you know, basically pump their own two and a half pre-connects, right? They get two coming off engine one, two coming off engine two, and now both pumpers are working much less, you know, less, less, uh, you know, hard uh, and, and are basically pumping 500 GPMs versus one pumper trying to do all the work and pump a thousand GPMs. And to me, like, it just makes sense. It just makes sense to maximize your water supply. Once you get that water supply coming in, if you have extra water, why not let that second pumper do some pumping too and, and kind of share the load, right? So we're not having to generate a thousand GPM out of that first pumper necessarily. We could maybe do half of that and have the second engine pump you know, the other 500 GPM. And that's just one scenario that, it, you know, every time I'm thinking dual pumping, you know, people are like, well, when, when could you use that in a suburban setting? We have strip malls all over suburbia and, and in a lot of rural communities too, you know, that are small towns that have, you know, those old taxpayers type buildings or, or like I said, you know, shopping centers, things like that, that are popping up. Um, and the reality of it is, I mean, you know, if you're trying to supply multiple large diameter hose lines, you know, attack lines um, or medium diameter, rather, uh, attack lines, um, most of us don't carry that many on our apparatus, number one. And number two, you know, what happens when you have to supply hand lines and then they want you to supply an aerial? That's another situation, right? Here's a perfect case in point. You know, we got hand lines coming off the attack engine. I got a great hydrant and now they want me to pump the aerial. Well, if it's a Quinn apparatus with a pump on the aerial, this is the whole argument, right? Well, should the engine pump them? I think if it's a true aerial that doesn't have a pump, then by all means, we got to pump it, right? We're going to put a hose from a discharge to their inlet, and we're going to supply the waterway. But if it's a Quinn apparatus, which 80% of America is operating in, why not just give them the extra water and let them pump their own aerial? You know, that's... that's well, another- it, yeah, that's... that's. I mean, so to, to, to go back to... Before I touch on that, the Quinn idea, and I don't want to forget this, but... You know, you're talking about, you know, having engine one and two dual pump, right, uh, on that strip mall scenario. And one thing that, you know, I know it's even something that I was eh about, but it's it's often overlooked, but it's a very important component to remember as part of the attack engine or anytime you have lines coming off of you, you're also a layer of accountability for those lines. So rather than have engine one have four lines off of it, and you're trying to remember whose crew is where and which exposure they're going into by splitting it. Yeah, I mean, can your pumper move a thousand gallons? But yeah, probably. But by having half the crew with their own basic, uh, you know, additional accountability officer being the pump operator, you know, I know, hey, I got engine three's crew and engine seven's crew operating in exposure one, right? And you mark your gauges, you know, who's operating off your line. It's a layer of redundancy in that aspect, too. It goes back to that that whole span of control, you know, concept, right? So if I've got four or five, six lines off my apparatus, it, it becomes very, very difficult to keep track of who's on what line, what their flows are, right? I mean, that you know, you can do it. And I used to carry a grease pencil just for this this very reason because I would mark my gauge and I would write the pressure that I wanted to be at, to, you know, and then I would write the crew that was operating on that. So engine one, engine three, whatever, whoever's on that line is just kind of that redundancy of, of keeping track. But if I only have to keep track of two companies versus four or five, I think that's just, it's a win-win. And you, you know, you're getting, like I said, the pumps working, you know, 
easier. It's not it's not doing as much work. You're kind of sharing the load. You've got some redundancy. So if you do have some sort of pump issue, you still have a operating pumper. There's a lot of wins that come with dual pumping. And absolutely, I, I just think that it's one of those things that's not understood very well in a lot of the American fire services. It seems like, you know, I, I go around, I talk to folks, and, and at least in my part of the country, um, there's not a big understanding of that. There's not a whole lot of training that goes on with dual pumping. And it's just kind of one of those, when you tell people to go intake to intake, they look at you like you're, like yeah, you're crazy. Long, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's, can't do that. It won't work. Yeah. Right. So, so where I love to dual pump is especially anytime that we're dealing with aerials, right? Because I mean, <laughs> right. It just, it makes everything easier. Right. And I was just doing a scenario in East Tennessee, not to uh, last week where we had a tower ladder with a 2000 gallon per minute waterway. And then a straight stick with both of them were quints with a thousand gallon per minute waterway. And we were able to flow 4,000 gallons a minute at our fire scene in this, in this uh, uh, scenario via dual pumping operation. So both the tower or both the aerials were tied together intake to intake. One, the one tower ladder was receiving a supply from a hydrant that was a couple hundred foot away. And the other aerial was receiving a supply from an engine that was on a hydrant a couple hundred feet away. So we had two engines pumping to the scene. Both rigs were dual pumped. Um, we did a parallel supply line operation. So basically all you're doing, the beautiful thing about it is from the supply side of things, the engine at hydrant one knows, okay, I'm supplying half the operation. The operation's flowing 4,000 gallons a minute. I'm doing my math for 2,000 gallons a minute. And it's a parallel supply line. So really, I'm doing my math for a thousand gallons a minute. All my pressures are the same. It's going down there. And then whatever truck needs it, it, it takes it. The other engine does the same thing. I get 2000 gallons a minute down to there. And the water self splits between the two rigs, intake to intake. And whichever rig needs it, it goes to, right? And by doing it in that fashion, we basically, again, created that above ground loop system and the water was able to go where it needed to, and everybody was happy, right? And in that scenario, what we'll find is a lot of times the engine horsepower will be the limiting factor, right? We'll just run out of horsepower to move that volume yeah. of water. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, it, you know, it's such a great tactic. It's such a great, you know, uh, option for water supply that uh, I really think, you know, if more people trained on it and saw the benefits of it, I, you know, it, it's one of those things that just makes sense um, to do. And if you've got the capability, uh, why not do it? Right. It, it's it's not hurting anything. You've already got you're not really changing anything. You're getting water to your first dew pumper. Right. You're just taking the water that's not being used and simply sharing it with your brothers. Right. And, and making a more efficient operation. So uh, on a side note. That something I think that's important to notate is we're talking about a positive water supply for dual pumping. Uh, dual pumping doesn't work so well from a draft. Um, so, so people, uh, you know, people probably should notate that the drafting is a different concept uh, because you're operating in the world of, well, perceived negative pressure, but really it's just pressure differentials. You're not getting positive water supply. Centrifugal pumps love positive water supply, obviously. It makes their job a lot easier. They don't have to work as hard. Uh, if you try to dual pump from a, uh, a draft, how does that usually work out? Well, so I have done it. 
And here's what I will say. Um, for the majority of the American fire service, it's a tactic that is not worth trying. Can you do it? Yes. And like a captain of mine used to tell me usually on a daily basis, Andy, you can do anything once. And yeah, you know, it's something that you can try. And I will tell you that you're not going to really reap much benefit by doing it unless, and this is where I have done it. We did it in Chesapeake, Virginia on a different class that I was teaching uh, with them. And their pumper had the one engine that we were using was uh, part of their foam team. And that rig had uh, four large inlets on it, two large inlets on the passenger side of the pump and a front intake. And then the driver's side had its large intake, right? So that rig was able to, we were triple tube drafting on the, on the passenger side. And then we had another rig dual pump through the driver's side and put an additional uh, line in service. And that was, we were doing that because by triple tube drafting, we had more water coming into the pump and the apparatus did not have enough horsepower to discharge it all. So basically we tied another rig in and another diesel motor to get the water through and make use of it. Now, unless you're running an apparatus with that configuration, it is not something worth doing. That, that, that's what I'll say. So yeah, yeah. Done, yes, it's not worth it for most of us. But right. what I will say is, can I, um, can I dual pump in the rural environment? And the answer is yes. And what I mean by that is if I have two engines up the driveway and the third engine is drafting out of a dump tank, that engine can draft out of the dump tank, pump up the supply line, and the two engines up the driveway can be dual pumped sure. because it's still, like you said, it's pressure, right? Right. So um, it's a tactic that can be used. It's not just uh, reserved for uh, hydrogen areas. Uh, I think that's a really big, right. big thing to remember. It's just the big thing is you just you got to realize like the way it typically is set up is you know. It, Two apparatus that are dual pumping, you have to understand there's got to be extra water there to, to, to give. Basically, you have to have water that's coming in in, in surplus, like you said. Um, usually, when we're talking dual pumping operations, there's some sort of pressurized source, whether it's a hydrant or whether it's a pumper pumping to another apparatus who's then dual pumping with another apparatus on scene. Um, that's that's just I just want to clarify that because I don't want our, our rural brethren to go out and, and go intake to intake from, from a pond and go, What? Yeah, we got a single hard suction in the pond, and they're like, "We can't get no water out." Well, that's that's why. So exactly, um, yeah, it's not it's not something that is worth doing from a draft. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pressurized water, pressurized water. Figured figured that was probably a point of clarification that needed to be yeah. made. So, no um, so you mentioned four way valves. Um, personally, I like them, but but I know some guys don't like them. What are your thoughts on on the four way valve? Do you do you feel like they're worth putting on the plug? You know, when we're doing hydrant operations, uh, more often than not, uh, or is it something we should only maybe you know reserve if we have long hose lays and, and things like that? You know, is there a cutoff in your mind? Because I know I worked for an agency previously that uh, had them. That you know, I worked with one agency that uh, said you had to put it on all the time. I had another agency I worked for that said you only had to put them on if the lay was over three hundred feet. Uh, away from the, the source, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that goes out there in, in the world of four waves. 
Um, like I said, I think they're a great a great appliance. I think they're they're very useful. But I just want to get your take. I know you're you're pretty familiar with most of the four ways on the market. Do you find them to be worth worth the, the squeeze? Is the juice worth the squeeze on a four way? Yeah. So four way valve is is a great tool in the toolbox, but is it the be all end all answer for everything? No. Um, and like like we like we said before, a lot of firemen are. Hey, you know, we've got to have a one fix for all of our stuff, right? And it, it is not that. And, and here's where, you know, when people ask, uh, you know, should we get a four-way valve or, you know, whatever, you know, when they ask that question, I, I usually ask them, what is the spacing between your engines? Meaning, how long will engine one be operating by themselves before help arrives? And more importantly, back to what we talked about before, is engine one going to perform a forward lay when they pull when they when they get there, or do they go directly to the scene? Both of those are really important questions to ask yourself before you get you know really deep and invested in the four way mm-hmm. valve because you know the department that I worked for we ran four way valves and at a point in time we had a policy that said same thing like you said right if if the lay was more than 300 foot the four way valve had to be connected and the pumper had to be connected to the four way valve but the problem with that was you know the 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 firehouse that I ran out of we for most of my career we had two engines and a truck so if everybody was in quarters engine five and seven would be pulling up at the same time. There was no reason to use a four-way valve when I could just hook the second two engine to the hydrant directly, right? Because uh, depending on the four-way valve you purchase, there is a little bit of loss in there, especially at higher flows. Um, So that's another consideration to take into account too. But, um, you know, for a lot of suburbia where it could be a minute before help arrives i tell people yeah a four-way valve is a great tool especially if you know that you're doing a a forward lay right and for 90 percent of our fires where because a lot of people when i say we'll put an engine on the hydrant you know they'll say well for most of our fires we don't need a pumper on a hydrant to boost pressure because the hydrant itself can give us that 300 gallon per minute flow for our first and second hand line and I get that. That's that's a valid argument. But having the ability to come back and be able to tie in later on, that's what a four-way valve allows you to do. Um, you know, I was just teaching a, a, a class in East Tennessee uh, and the department there, their standard operating procedure was that uh, the first thing doesn't lay in, the second dude does not lay in, they pull in and boost your backup, and third do wraps the hydrant lays in and gives the supply to the first do engine. And I told, you know, the folks in that class, I said, you know, I'm not here to argue whether that's a smart or a poor decision. Obviously you guys are putting fires out and, and it's works for you. However, if you're going to one of these fires in one of these, um, you know, uh, apartment buildings that is going to be a little bit more to it, that's where you might want your four-way valve for either your fourth due or your mutual aid company to come back later and tap into that four-way valve to boost the pressure. So you definitely it's it's a it's a lot more than uh, it, it. There's more to it than just saying yeah, grab it and put it on all the time. 
Um, and what I will say is if folks don't practice with the four-way valve, um, people won't understand how to use them. And it will turn into a, uh, you know, a goat rodeo anytime that they try and use it. It's something that I tell folks, you know, it's probably a skill that you probably want to play with at least once a month or, you know, once every couple shifts just to get and make sure that you're connecting to the damn thing the right way. Because people I've seen people make that mistake. If you don't hook to it right. It won't it won't it can't be used. And. You know, then there's the other the other uh, beautiful thing about it is it's not a one trick pony. There there are a couple other ways you can use the four way valve, and and one way that I like to use it if I need to, I can use it for heavy hydrant hookups and basically essentially use it as a giant Y on the steamer port. Um, I can use it to overcome a blocked hydrant because it has that bend and, you know, I can, I can use it to redirect the supply line if there's a car parked in front of, of the line. Now we all want to do the backdraft and break the windows out. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to argue that, uh, you know, I know I worked for a department where if I had done that, I would have gotten fired on the spot, right. If I damaged somebody's car like that. Um, but I, you know, for me, nine times out of 10, when I see cars blocking hydrants, even if you can get away with breaking the windows, the kinks that are put into the supply line to me are not worth doing that damage um, when you could just redirect the stream or the, the hose lines, uh, you know, a couple different other ways. But a four-way valve allows you to do that, and that's, that's an advantage of that. Um, and then one of my personal favorite options for the four-way valve is it's an option for overcoming a dead hydrant. You know, let's say you perform a forward lay, from a hydrant you thought was good, it turns out that hydrant is dead. Well, it's a simple option for being able to hook directly to the valve, reversing out, hooking to the good hydrant, and then just pumping to the original engine. So it, it gives you a lot of different options uh, if you know how to use it and you play with it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, like I said, I, I think, you know, in suburbia, if you've got some extended – response time staggered responses of apparatus coming in especially if you're a forward lay department um you know my previous department we we did a lot of booster backup and a lot of forward lays and one of the problems that we started running into is we we're pretty long lays a lot of times 800 900 feet you know and not a great water system most of the time average at best um and so we ran into some issues with we needed to get that water supply going we need to get some water going uh, so we would do these these lays, and unfortunately, a lot of times we didn't have a third do immediately there to plug into the hydrant and pump the hydrant. And so the discussion came about about uh, using four ways. And in that scenario, I think it was probably one of the better things that could be done uh, for that situation because at least with the four way, we could get some water going. Not not as much water as we possibly could get out of that hydrant if we had an engine pumping the hydrant. But just, you know, allowing us to get initial water going for the first couple lines and then that third new engine coming in and saying, hey, you know, plug into the four way, pump the hydrant. Let's get as much water out of this as we can and send it downstream 800, 900 feet, whatever, to the to the attack bumper. Um, so in that situation, I think it's a really an advantageous uh, situation. Um, again, it's not the silver bullet. It's not the end all be all. Uh, where I'm at now, we have hydrants every 300 feet. We're very fortunate to have a pretty robust uh, hydrant distribution and, and, and water system for the most part. And so, you know, in that situation, it's just 
it just makes sense to why not just have some, you know someone reverse out and pump the hydrant when just it's 300 feet away and hell half the time we can hand jack to the hydrant uh from the second do <laughs> so it's uh it's one of those things i think it is situational but like you said it the application i think is is everybody thinks it's only for that one you know situation there are other ways to use them like you brought up and it's a tool it's a, it's an appliance that like anything has its pros and cons i think we just we have to understand them we have to train with them if we're going to be proficient with their use and uh like i said it's good to hear you know you, you bring up some of the other uses because everybody thinks like you said it's that one one trick pony this is all it does that's the only way to use it and that couldn't be farther from the truth and like you said a lot of departments think it's the silver bullet like this is going to solve all our water supply issues when in all reality you don't always need it especially if you got decent hydrant spacing and you know and you're able to put pumpers on on the plug pretty quick if they're arriving in tandem with one another so um on a on a kind of separate note that's kind of related to that um you know we talk about forward lays and i know a lot of departments kind of always i don't say always but more often than not default to forward lays um your thoughts on on reverse lays as a practice do you think that that is as a as a as if you, in Andy's world of, of pump operations, um, if you're the guy calling the shot and you're the water supply operate you know operations officer and you're giving directions uh, to incoming companies, would you more often than not rather see some sort of reverse out or at least putting a pump around the hydrant every time, or is that something you kind of play by ear in your mind based on the situation? Well, so I, I love a reverse lay, but, but here's, here's where I tell folks, you have to be, you have to know your department. You have to know your flows. You have to know the hose that you're dealing with because the, in my opinion, the biggest disadvantage to a reverse lay is when I use five inch hose and I have a long lay if I'm trying to then do a booster backup scenario or if I reverse out and that first in engine says, hey, I need water now and I go to pump and give him my tank water while I'm making the hydrant connection, I, I lose a good chunk of my uh, water supply or excuse me, my, my tank water just filling up that five inch hose. Sure. Right. So, um, you know, just just for folks for food for thought. Right. It's important to remember that. Five inch hose, it takes a hundred gallons per hundred foot to fill. Four inch hose is sixty-five gallons per hundred foot to fill. So, I mean, I can chew up a lot of my tank water pretty damn quickly. But, I mean, having a pumper on a hydrant, I will never tell somebody not to put a pumper on a hydrant. Um, I'm I'm all about it. And if I know that, you know, I, I'm pulling up and it's it's a larger scale fire and the for whatever reason the first engine did not lay in, I will absolutely prefer a forward or excuse me, a, a, a reverse lay over a forward lay to get that pumper on the hydrant. Um, because it just again, it allows me it's important for folks to understand that fire hydrants can't overcome friction. Pumpers are designed to overcome friction. That's why we have them, right? So by putting an engine on that hydrant. It's a huge advantage, right? Um, the the other thing that um, shoot, I just lost it. I, I had another point to make with that, but um, putting putting that engine on a hydrant is is very very advantageous. Oh, that's what I was going to say. And and you know, a lot of people are like, well, what if I don't need the pumper? What if I don't need the engine on a hydrant? The the flow rates uh, from the hydrant itself uh, are enough for what we're doing. 
Um, one of the beautiful things that I tell people is if even if you hook that pumper to the hydrant and let's say you don't need the pump to boost the pressure, all you need to do is you can simply put the vehicle transmission in neutral and now you're no longer adding pressure on top of the hydrant pressure, right? And the important thing that I want to note to people is um, leave the actual pump shift in pump just put the truck transmission in neutral. And the reason you want to do that is because if the, the flow through that uh, supply pumper that did that reverse lay is more than 500 gallons a minute going down to that attack engine, that flow rate usually is enough to cause the impeller to spin a little bit, which in turn rotates the impeller shaft, which in turn starts turning the gears in the transfer case. And if you go and throw that up, you will grind. Right. And we don't want to do that. So really, all you need to do is just leave the vehicle transmission in neutral. Waterus and all the pump manufacturers say that doesn't hurt nothing. Right. So just sit there. And then if you do need to um, boost the pressure, just drop it back and drive and you're ready to pump now. So um, it really is. It, it gives you options. Right. And then the other advantage, too, is let's say it's a hot hydrant. Um, what the operator, if they're, if they're worth their salt, what they can do is if the attack engine is still saying, Hey, we got way too much incoming pressure. Well, even if the, uh, supply engine hooked to the hydrant has put their truck transmission in neutral, he can go and then he can adjust his intake relief valves. If he needs to, he can open a deck gun and flow water from down there to lower the residual, right? Like there's a lot of options and that that operator can come and serve as a guide to kind of help um, the attack engine not get blasted with too much uh, intake pressure. Oh yeah. I 100% um, options. <laughs> options are nice. It's nice. That's to what be, it's all about. It really is a pump operator. I, I was always a big fan of, I want to, if this thing escalates, I want the ability if it gets out of control and it's now it's not one house, it's two houses or it's not two or, you know, one or two units in an apartment. It's six or eight units in an apartment um, that we can build the, you know, we can kind of expand with the incident, right? We can kind of grow with the incident. If you, if you kind of put yourself in a, paint yourself in a corner and you've only got one supply line and you didn't fully dress the hydrant or you didn't get that, you know, dual tap or, and you didn't put a pumper there. And now all of a sudden, you know, you need more water. Now we got a bigger problem, right? Because uh, we're going to have to go find water somewhere else or, oh, we need someone to pump the hydrant. You, you don't have a four-way valve on or you don't have additional valves on the hydrant. Now, guess what? You're you're basically got two options. You can go find another hydrant from further away in a lot of cases or you shut down your hydrant and put an apparatus on that hydrant, which, of course, delays fire attack and everything else. Yeah, going right. on with it's that. an interruption in flow. Right. It's, it's, it's a bad situation as a driver to be in when, when you could have just done it right from the beginning and put yourself in a position to win from the get-go. But I think that comes down to we do a really good job in the fire service, at least in the last you know 10 years. I feel like there's been a big emphasis on you know fast water, getting tack lines off the truck, you know uh, adequate nozzle flows and, and you know hose line management. And there's been a lot of great information that's been disseminated in the fire service over the past 10 years on that front. And there's a lot of departments that do a really good job of getting attack lines in operation. But at the end of the day, we could have the most skilled engine companies in the world putting lines on the ground. But if we can't su supply those lines, then nobody's putting fire out, you know? Exactly. And that's what it comes down to is we have to win 
water supply is is part of the bigger continuum. But if we want to do what we all love to do, and that's fight fire and go put the fire out, we have to have adequate water to do it. And and that's where I think a lot of departments, you know, it would do a lot of good to go back and you know drill on water supply operations, whether that's drafting, you know, if that's your bread and butter, if drafting is your bread and butter, get good at drafting, get good at dump tank operations, get good at, you know, having multiple uh, uh, draft hoses in the water, you know, maximizing that water supply to your pumper, right? If that's your bread and butter, that should be what you practice, right? And if it's, and and if it's, you know, hydro supplies your thing, then get good at it and get good at being flexible and being able to build in redundancies in your, your water supply operation. And, and it's one of those things, if you don't plan it, like you said, you know, earlier, if it's one of those things you never pick up and touch the four-way valve or you never do dual pumping or, you know, you're not going to magically just have it down pat at two in the morning when you haven't touched it in two years. You know, it's one of those things you have to put your hands on. And luckily water supply is one of those things that a lot of times we can train without a lot of extra resources, right? As far as, just the basics of water supply. Now, obviously, your bigger operations, you're going to need some companies trying to go out of service. But can we go tie into a hydro behind the fire station? Can we go out, you know, to a new subdivision that's getting cut in and, you know, do some pump operations, flow out into the woods? You know, we don't have to put a lot of holes on the ground to do that. A lot of times we put nozzles on discharges and and flow and, and do pump evolutions and just get that muscle memory down, right? It doesn't take a whole lot of extra you know companies to do that stuff a lot of times we can just take what we have in our station go find a water supply and practice those skill sets and that's the beauty of it is you know there's really no excuse because it's something that every fire department has to overcome water supply is is important on every fire every fire it's important um and people say well no we put it out with tank water but what what put the water you know what put the fire out water right and and what happens if that fire grows and you have to expand do you have the ability to quickly you know accommodate those needs and i think that's what it comes down to is this is stuff that uh it just you got to get your hands dirty you got to get out there and you got to flow water you got if you're on a pumping apparatus i'm a firm believer that uh you should be flowing water pretty routinely uh you know i i personally feel like once a week is is at a minimum that's just me. I, I think that's absolutely at a minimum once a week, but at a you know absolute minimum, as an engine company, a pumper, whatever you're on that has a pump on it, if you're not exercising that pump and, and going through you know putting it through the paces every couple of weeks, man, like you know you're going to lose those skill sets. You're not going to be as proficient with them. And honestly, those pumps need to be flushed out. They've got it. You know stuff. You know how it is. You go someplace and you can tell that it hasn't been pumped in a while because you open the discharge and, oh, man, look at the rusty water coming out, right? Yeah. So <laughs> we've all seen them. And and it's funny because the same people that talk about standpipe systems, you know, flush, flush the standpipe, all this crap in it. Well, the same thing can happen to our fire department pumpers if we don't put water through them, right? If we, especially if we got a, a poor water supply. If we're not putting water through this stuff, it's like any kind of plumbing. Stuff yep. gets in there, stuff settles, stuff gets crusty. And, you know, they need love, too. So you got to you got to put the water through them. But, uh, Andy, it's a uh, man. I, I've got literally so many notes here. Um, really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. This is uh, it's been an honor to have you on the show today. I, I think that uh, we've covered some pretty good ground. Um, a lot of some nuggets here to take away for guys listening to the show. Hopefully uh, folks listening will go back and put some of the stuff to use and, and start talking about water supply operations in their fire department. And, you know, I think every fire department has to be somewhat 
you know, they got it. They got to figure out what they need for their operation, right? What is your operation? Because what works in my city may not work in your town out, you know, in Tennessee may not work for your, you know, your district out in Montana. Uh, everybody's water supply situation is a little different based on where they're at. And like I said, for some guys, you know, drafting is their, their go-to. That's what they do all the time. You know, for guys that are in the city, like where I'm at now, we don't draft very often. It's one of those right. things that's a perishable skill. So there's guys that will probably blow us out of the water. And it's one of those things that the only way you're going to keep those skills up is, is you got to look at what you, what's realistic for you. Number one, like you said, based on how your apparatus are set up, based on how your water supply system is set up. But we need to have real conversations with our with our our guys, with our staff, you know, with the guys on the line, obviously, but also with some of the guys driving policy and you know, procedures and purchasing equipment. And, you know, if, if you're in a situation where a four-way valve is, you know, is an advantageous buy for the department, I think that maybe that's one of those things. Go test them. Hey, chief, can we test this out? Maybe this can enhance our operation. If you're in a place where maybe that's not applicable, then, then, you know, there's no one size fits all, I guess is what I'm getting at. There's no one size fits all for water supply. And the only way you're going to know what you can and can't do is you got to get out with your equipment with your apparatus, with your appliances, with your water supply, with your resources, and you've got to be realistic on what you can and can't do. And you, you can't really know that unless you do it. And I think that's the biggest takeaway I've, I've you know, taken away from today is you, you, you don't know what you don't know, <laughs> you know, sometimes. And, and sometimes, you know, we take these anecdotal solutions and conversations and we take them as gospel but people don't take the time sometimes to go and ask those hard questions like why is it like this what what makes it work like this and what makes it tick and i think that that's the 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 goal hopefully i know with what you guys are doing with water thieves is to get those conversations started you know what is best practice for water supply what does that look like if we have that once in a century fire that that once in a career fire you know how are we going to tackle this thing because it's not a matter of if like at some point someone in your department is going to go to that fire Someone in your department is going to be challenged by water supply. And, you know, if we don't have that stuff kind of pre-planned ahead of time, it, we don't usually rise to the occasion. Let's let's be honest. There's that we usually fall to the level of our training preparation and we aren't going to overcome stuff if we don't even know the the solutions to overcoming. If we don't know what our what our options are, it's hard to, to call an audible if you don't know what the audible looks like. And uh Man, I, I tell you, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation today. Um, so much good information to unpack. Um, I, I could go on for hours, nerd out <laughs> on this stuff, man. It, it excites me. I, I don't know if you can tell them. I get a little excited about this stuff. So um, it's just it's it's been a, a lot of fun to have you on the show and just kind of pick your brain and listen to your thought process on stuff, man, because I think you've probably, uh, you know, I know you inspire me to get out and do more stuff and, and to try stuff because – uh, you're 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 doing you're doing so much good work on getting information out and just putting your people's hands on stuff and that's that's what I can honestly say is I feel like you know sitting in your class a couple years ago I was like I love the fact that you expose people to stuff that's maybe out of their element right stuff that yeah. maybe they haven't thought about and when they see what they can actually do like you said it's not sexy right water supply pump operator the driver engineer stuff oh that's not sexy until people realize like the light comes on and they're like oh Oh, we're doing some pretty cool stuff here, right? This can be cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool when you start seeing what you actually can do. And it's amazing when the lights come on and people, you know, when they see that they can do things that they were told weren't possible. And all of a sudden they're like, oh, wait, wait a minute. We can do this. And and I think that's what gets 
me excited as you know as, as a student of the craft is people that are driving the industry forward and pushing people to really understand the the information is out there you just have to go look for it and sometimes you know it's at your fingertips just go out and do it go go yeah. ask questions you know go out in the behind the station and tie in and and try stuff you know put double tap a hydrant triple tap a hydrant see what works what doesn't work you know go out there and and figure out where your bottom line is in your district and i love it man i think it's it's very very cool to see you guys doing something that doesn't get a lot of attention in the fire service and i kudos man keep keep doing what you guys are doing because it is well, we truly it. important I work appreciate it. so uh from from one water nerd to, to to the next i uh i appreciate it i i thank you for what you guys are doing spreading the word about water supply and educating the masses uh you know one one thief thieves class at a time uh still <laughs> And, and, you know, hey, if it takes getting a little uh, competition going East Coast, West Coast to keep uh, keep some momentum, you know, we can drum up some business. You know, we'll tell, tell those guys out in San Francisco they're next. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Nick, thank, thank you for, for letting me be on the show. And, yeah. and it's been a pleasure. And, um, yeah, I love it. Thank you. Yeah, man. This is good. I'll, uh, yeah, we'll get it all uh, edited up and uh, pushed out here in a few hours. But hopefully uh, we'll get to talk again soon, man. And, cross paths i'm sure at some point in the next uh you know few months here but if not you know you know i'm gonna be out at the lake so hopefully you guys will be back out there again next year um yes sir and you guys keep up the good work and we'll uh we'll talk again soon brother but uh have a good evening you too thank you all right see you brother take care